Okay, well, for this episode, the first of the new year, I am presenting the audio of my live event with Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro that we did in San Francisco a few weeks back. To say that this audio has been much anticipated really is an understatement. Ben has an enormous following online, and I have been hearing from all of you, mostly on social media and in comment threads. I really haven't been sitting on this audio for any other reason than I had many other podcasts in the queue, and I couldn't decently hold them for much longer. But the time has arrived. And I just have a few things to say by way of preamble. I introduced both of these guys on stage, so I don't need to do that here. Eric Weinstein, many of you know from a previous podcast, he's always great. Ben, as many of you know, is quite a polarizing and controversial figure. I got a fair amount of grief when I announced that we would be doing a podcast together. Also, a ton of enthusiasm from his fans. Needless to say, I can't take responsibility for everything Ben has said or written in the past. I'm certainly unaware of most of what he's said and written. But I'm aware of enough to know that he has, like many of us operating in this space on these topics, been unfairly maligned and demonized by his detractors. I think any comparison between him and Milo Yiannopoulos is quite unfair, given the differences in how they operate. This is something I say on stage at the beginning of this event, but that's a comparison that's often made. Ben and I disagree about some fundamental things here, and and it was really, I, I found myself in a situation which I often find myself in on the podcast where I have to play host and debate partner simultaneously. And I've begun to feel that there really is no perfect way to split that baby. And I I certainly didn't do it perfectly here. Uh, More and more, I try to err on the side of being the gracious host who is not going to let things get bogged down. But the scientist and philosopher in me who can't let a bad point stand invariably flirts with the ditch on the other side of the road. So you can decide whether I struck the right balance here. Ben and I disagree fundamentally about religion and its connection to human values. We disagree about free will. I tackled some of these points as they came up and let others go in the interest of not getting bogged down. But I think Ben and I did about as well as we could here where we disagreed, given the nature of the event. But you be the judge. I should say that despite our disagreements, the vibes with Ben were great. In the green room, beforehand, afterwards, This was a very fun and collegial experience for everyone, and I'm very grateful for Eric and Ben's participation, as well as to all of you who came out for the event. We had a packed house at the Masonic in San Francisco, and from what I can tell, most of you had a lot of fun. So, without further delay, I give you the Waking Up Podcast, live from San Francisco, with Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro.
Thank you. Okay, well, sorry for the late start. I'm going to jump right into it because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I've got two guests tonight, and uh, the first is a mathematician. Uh, he has a PhD from Harvard, and he has held research positions at Harvard and MIT and Hebrew University and Oxford. Uh, you may have heard him before on my podcast. He is one of the most interesting people I have ever met, and uh, honestly, that's saying a lot. Um, and he has, along with his, with his brother, Brett, who I just did a podcast with last night in Seattle, he has become one of the most valuable defenders of free speech uh, in our time. So please welcome Eric Weinstein. Thank you for coming. And our next contestant <laughs> is the editor-in-chief of dailywire.com. He is the host of the Ben Shapiro Show, so guess his name, which is the top conservative podcast in the nation. He is the author of seven books, and uh, he has been a nationally syndicated columnist since the age of 17. Pity, he got such a late start. Uh, he's a graduate of UCLA and Harvard Law School. Please welcome Ben Shapiro. Thank you for coming. So we have a lot to get into here, and there are areas of agreement. I mean, many of you know who these two guys are, and, and, and you know, you, you can imagine the course we're going to chart here. Uh, I, I want to start with Ben, because he, he's had a truly unusual experience, I, and, and <laughs> many of you may not be aware of just how unusual. And this will take us into areas of agreement, Ben, where you know, we definitely agree, which is around the primacy of free speech and how strange our national conversation is on so many topics. So Ben is, if you don't know, is, is the person who, when he goes to Berkeley, requires, Berkeley University, uh, requires $600,000 worth of security to give a speech. Uh, we have a little bit less security here tonight, so <laughs> please behave yourselves. Uh, but so it's a bit, Ben, what, what's, been, what's been going on? What has it been like to be you in the last two years? Confusing. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I've always been a little bit bewildered by the scope of the opposition at these college speeches because I don't actually think that my message is supremely controversial. Uh, it's pretty mainstream conservative. Uh, and yet when I show up on campuses at Cal State Los Angeles, there was a near riot. When I went to Berkeley, obviously, they required a fair bit of security, uh, thanks to Antifa. Uh, and when I was at uh, DePaul, Univer DePaul University, banned me outright. Uh, they threatened to arrest me if I set foot on their campus. Uh, even though the students had uh, invited me. Uh, University of Wisconsin, they actually tried to pass a law banning the heckler's veto, basically, mm -hmm. after I spoke at University of Wisconsin. So I, I think it has far less to do with me than it does with this kind of mood in the country that's, that's so polarized and so crazed. And I would say, with regard to college campuses, unique to the political left. I'm not seeing a lot of it from the political right. The political right certainly has its own problems at this point in time. But what's going on on campuses is, uh, is something that 
you know, I've been speaking on college campuses for most of my career, so 15 mm. years, and only in the last couple have I needed security. The first time I ever acquired security guards was last year, and right. now, you know, every place I go, I have to have security guards when it's a public event, so. And, and you also, you're getting it from both sides in a way that's completely surreal, because, so, for instance, you're often disparaged as a Nazi or a white supremacist, and yeah, yet you're... Yeah, it's the yarmulke that gives me away on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even if you were not going to notice the yarmulke... Uh, you were actually the most targeted victim of anti-Semitism in, what, 2016? Uh, yeah, among journalists on yeah, Twitter, among, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It is upside down. And you're also often compared to your former Breitbart colleague, Milo Yiannopoulos, right? And, and that's, yeah, I, that's an unfortunate pairing. Because it means the, the reason why I'm, I'm, I wanted to talk to you is because while I think you and I will disagree about several maybe foundational things... <laughs> I see you as someone who is sincerely defending a position based on kind of a rational chain of argumentation, based on first principles that we may or may not share. But you're not a performance artist, uh, and that's a crucial distinction. I mean, that's at least what I'm going for, right? I mean, I've always thought that what I'm trying to do anyway is say things that I think are true, and if they piss you off, they piss you off. But I'm not going in there with the idea I need to piss somebody off to make a headline. That's why I've always found this a little bit puzzling, because there are provocateurs whose job it is to go into a university, say something deliberately provocative, just to get a rise out of people and get a headline. Uh, And since that really is not my MO, I've been sort of puzzled, frankly, by the level of opposition uh, on on all sides. It was was a very weird year. I mean, last year was a weird year. I I had the alt-right calling me uh, a Black Lives Matter activist and Black Lives Matter calling me an alt-righter. So it was... Yeah, it, was, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a unique time. 2016, we're still living in a parallel universe in which Marty McFly actually did not stop Biff from using the sports yearbook. Well, one lens through which I want us to view the, this conversation is really two lenses. It's, it's what most worries you and what most interests you at this point. Let's start with the, the worry. Where, where are you in, at this moment? Well, I, I guess for me... Um... I've tried to localize my concern with the breakdown of what I call semi-reliable communal sense-making. Um, if something happens... It's uh, a very are, Eric Weinstein phrase. <laughs> <laughs> this is the reason my Twitter follower account is in orders of magnitude below yours. Uh, the, um, the idea being that if something happens uh, and everybody in the audience processes it, uh, we will fall into certain clusters, and those clusters are fairly reliable and dependent. And so, you know, to, to Ben's point that he is uh, both Black Lives Matter and uh, alt-right in this Schrodinger superposition. Um, <laughs> so what, what is that? And it has to do with the fact that traditionally we've used institutions to guide our sense-making and to make sense of things collectively, and that has now gone away. And so depending upon... Um, what institutions I'm hooked up to, what was my last, uh, where did the the fox, you know, last have the scent? Um, I can be at odds with somebody I love, somebody who I've thought about as somebody I've shared a life with, uh, Mm -hmm. because there's no longer any way to do this communal. And the semi-reliable, I don't think that Walter Cronkite was actually always telling us the truth, but it was in some sense, you know, to first approximation, close enough that there was a a national consciousness belief structure, there was enough shared uh, sort of complex for us to function as a country. And I think that that's gone away. So I think this is the parent of the crisis, which I 
increasingly think of as this, uh, you know, I call it the no-name revolution or the N-squared revolution, where in some sort of new regime, which doesn't look like any revolution we've seen before, it's much less physically violent so far, uh, it's digitally extremely violent, and it has to do with the fact that we can't make sense of things communally mm. uh, at, at some semi-reliable level. And what are the ideas or sets of ideas that you think are most culpable for bringing us here? Well, it's, it's tough. I think that what really happened, if, if we think about it historically, is that we had this beautiful period of fairly reliable, high, evenly distributed, technologically-led growth after World War II, up until about, let's say, 1970. And we predicated all of our institutions on this expectation that this growth was some sort of normal thing uh, that we could, we could depend upon in the future. When it ran out, um, we were left with all of our institutions looking in some form or another like Ponzi schemes. And in order to keep running an institution that expected growth in a steady state condition, let's say, um, you need to change the narrative to create some sort of as-if growth story. So you start stealing from the future, you start stealing from groups that are too weak to defend their own economic interests so that certain slices can keep growing, even if the pie mm. doesn't grow so well. There are certain areas that kept growing, like communications and, and, and computation. Uh, so there was some real growth, maybe fracking. But that in general, what we have is we have a bunch of institutions that used to be capable of honesty that had to develop narratives. And that the problem is we've had as-if growth uh, across the spectrum for most of our adult lives. And that story, which is a fiction, ran out. You're not one of these anti-capitalists I've been hearing about, are you? You're, you're the managing director of Teal Capital, so that wouldn't be good. <laughs> if this gets out, yeah. I'm, I'm toast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so is that the, well... That's the genesis of it. That, I mean, so you actually think economics is... The, the longest lever here that's influencing the machine? I mean, like, this breakdown of our, this failure of, of polite conversation to get us to converge on a meaningful worldview. Well, if you, if, you, if you chase it all the way up the chain, I mean, markets are, are in some sense the continuation of uh, natural and sexual selection by other means. And so what you have is that markets take over from... Uh, that's a, that's, that sounds like a very creepy come online from a economist. <laughs> 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 the night is young. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how to record. <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry. This is. Let me just acknowledge: I'm actually a bad podcast host. I see. So, <laughs> so, so you're, you're you're not with an expert here. You're a good sport. Yeah, I, I, I think that we don't realize that when we look out at the city, um, that nobody is telling people where to drive, what to do. Uh, it's sort of self-organized, with uh, markets being this kind of invisible fabric that keeps us together. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important that when growth stops uh, proceeding at, at the levels that it's expected, people can't form families in real time, so fertility is threatened, uh, people can't plan for, uh, for coupling and for a future. Mm -hmm. So I think it gets right into the most intimate details of our lives when, when the markets don't materialize in the way that we need them. Mm -hmm. So what is keeping you up at night? Oh, I worry a lot less about economics as the basis for social collapse. I, I don't think I think it's it's easy to to overstate the extent to which growth has stagnated. I mean, we are at four percent unemployment. Uh, the the economy uh, is not. I mean, this is not 1935. This is not even 1975. The, 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 there's still 
you know, significant economic growth. To me, it seems like the social fabric has been completely ripped apart. Uh, and some of that is due to social media and the fact that we coordinate with each other in a different way. But I think a lot of it has to do with loss of common values, like even the ability to have a common conversation. In order to have a conversation with one another, we have to take certain things for granted, like human reason, like objective truth. If we don't take these basic things at least for granted, then how are we even speaking the same language? And it seems to me that a lot of those things have disappeared in favor of radical subjectivism that may make us feel good, but doesn't provide the common framework for a conversation. And objective truth goes by the wayside, because mm -hmm. if we can't agree on the facts, how are we going to have a conversation? You see this particularly in our politics, where it seems like there's two bubbles that have been created. And if you read Huffington Post, you are in a completely different world than if you read Breitbart. Right. Uh, and and my, my mom actually first noticed this in 2012, because she said, you know, I was working at Breitbart at the time, and she said, well, it looks like from Breitbart, Romney's definitely going to win. I was like, yeah, he's definitely going to win. And, she, and then all my friends at work read Huffington Post, and they say that Obama's definitely going to win. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't know who to believe. And I said, well, I really don't know who to believe either, because no one knows the answer to that question. But you can see that it's broken down in incredibly radical ways now because even things where there should be a common basis of fact people are disagreeing on, right? So to take right. the Senate race in Alabama, right? There's pretty good, reliable accounts that the Republican candidate in that race uh, is likely guilty of some form of sexual abuse of underage girls. Uh, and a huge percentage of the Republican base, you know, my party, my, my group, a huge percentage of them will outright deny that that's the case because they'll say this is a witch hunt. People are out to get Roy Moore. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a conspiratorial attack on Roy Moore. So that's one example from the right. And then on the left, you'll have examples where you, know, you, you will say things that are biologically true. Take a controversial example, like there is a male sex and there is a female sex. And if you say that, then people will lose their minds because you're somehow insulting their subjectivity. Uh, and you know, when, when you do that, it's hard to have a conversation because people will change the terms they're using, they'll change the frame of reference they're using, and, how are we, and, and then they'll toss reason out altogether. They'll say, you know, your specific bias as a person prevents you from even having a reasonable conversation, right? Your white privilege or your background or your ethnicity or right. all of this prevents us from even discussing on a one-on-one -on -one level. Like, I can recognize my background and having an impact on how I think, but if that is supposed to be a conversation stopper, then yeah. how exactly are we supposed to have a conversation? Yeah, so that, that's why identity politics is so toxic, in my view, because if, if, if identity is paramount, communication is impossible. Right? Exactly. Like, like, because you haven't shared my specific experience, or because you don't have the same skin color, you're not the same gender, there's no bridge between us, right? And, 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 you're, and there's no chain of reasoning from you to me that should trump anything I currently think because what I think is, is anchored to identity. Exactly. And we, and we don't share an identity. Yeah, well, we're atomized individuals yeah. kind of bouncing yeah. off one another as opposed to being able to form some sort of molecular bond. Yeah. It, and I, I think that that's completely, it, it's, it seems like that's completely collapsed. Right, right. And, and is, do you think social media is the main engine of that collapse, or is it, is it just we we're, we're headed there anyway? I mean, I mean obviously Fox News and, and the, the fragmentation of media precedes social media, so we, we had our echo chamber. Yeah, I mean, I really don't think it's social media, and there was, a, there was a study that came out from, I think it was Harvard, actually, uh, reported by the New York Times, talking about how the impact of social media on polarization is overstated, that if you look at the most polarized populations in the country, it's actually older people, that people who are right. older are more polarized politically uh, and are having fewer conversations with people on the other side of the aisle than younger people. Uh, and younger people are obviously more apt to use social media. I, I really don't think it's that. I think that there is a ground shift in the way people think that's taken place even within our lifetime and has is, and is gained steam. Uh, and as I say, even basic concepts 
like reason are being thrown out in favor of a philosophy of, of feeling because maybe it does come down to lack of success for, for people. Maybe people do feel that they can't succeed in other ways. And so the way that they feel fulfilled, the way that they feel whatever need they have for fulfillment is by wallowing in themselves. Hmm. You know, if, I can't, if I can't find fulfillment in the outer world, then I will look inside me and I will look at what makes me special. And we've all been taught that we're special by Barney. And therefore, since we are all special, then you saying anything that disagrees with me is taking away my specialness. And that can't be infringed upon. You can actually try to look at the history of these ideas. Like, for example, you mentioned white privilege. And I, at some point, tried to track it down. And there's some two-page, it's not even an academic paper. So you know, unpacking the knapsack in the late 80s coming out of Wellesley. Or, you know, intersectionality comes out of apparently UCLA Law School. Hmm. A lot of these ideas actually began as kind of minor, interesting ideas, heuristics, that couldn't support a, an entire epistemology. And what happened was is that you had some sort of a vaguely approximate concepts um, that got pushed so far beyond their domain of applicability that they led to a kind of madness when they became sort of the substrate for thought. You can't really have conversations where you know, white privilege is, is, a, is a barrier. If Ben has a drinking problem and I have a gambling problem, we may not be able to understand each other's uh, addictions uh, directly, but if I think about Ben's problem... In I asked you not to talk about that publicly. <laughs> Step one, admit that you've got a problem. Uh, the issue is that uh, this idea of being able to hack empathy and hack understanding by using our own personal experiences, our lived experience, to use the jargon, um, and the felt experience, in order to empathize across these dividing lines, uh, shows this incredible failure of imagination. It's as if there was no screenwriter who was able to write both male and female characters mm. that men and women you know, identify with. And so I think it has to do with uh, pushing interesting but very limited heuristics so far beyond their domain of applicability. And you can track each one of these things using uh, Google engrams uh, to find out where they came from. Right. It seems to me that we're struggling, and it's, it's not just us, all of us are struggling to find a way to capture meaning and value in the context of a rational worldview. And, uh, and I think that is a, a challenge that just doesn't go away. That is a, kind of a perpetual challenge insofar as we understand the situation we're in. We need to find ways of talking about that so as to converge with a basic life plan with seven billion strangers. And I mean, one difference between us is, is what we think the value of religion is in that picture. So just to, just to get a little bit, bit of the, the context here, what, you are, you're an Orthodox Jew. What does that actually commit you to with respect to belief? I mean, what, what do you believe that I don't believe that is salient here? Okay, you know, so... I'm an atheist, so... Well, let's see. We're, in, case you, in, case, in case you hadn't I bet heard. That gives you a so. clue. Yeah, I, I, this, this is a, I hadn't picked up on that. This is going to be so awkward interview. now. Yeah. Uh, you kids have fun. This is Ali G. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, I believe in a creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that uh, he set certain guidelines for human behavior, that he cares what happens to us. Uh, I believe that he endowed us with, uh, in an American sense, certain inalienable rights that uh, accrue to us as virtue of being human. Hmm. Um, 
you know, from a Judaic perspective, which doesn't really impact public policy so much. One of the reasons that I think we can have a conversation is that when it comes to public policy discussions, uh, I try as little as possible to refer to biblical texts, which means I almost never do. Um, <clears throat> mainly because what would an appeal to authority that you don't believe in do? Mm. I mean, it's, it's a waste of time. Uh, so in the areas where I think we can actually have a conversation, where we're not talking about the value of kashrut or keeping Sabbath, which I think has very little you know, relevant input for public policy and the kind of social fabric building that we're talking about doing, uh, the stuff that I think is important where we disagree is man-made in God's image, created, uh, taking the premise by, by faith that God created us with certain inalienable rights, uh, endowed us with the capacity to choose, endowed us with the capacity to reason, uh, and cares about what happens to us. Right. So... Um, Not sure if you can say right any more cynically yeah. there, but you know, well, so, one so, word can do so much. <laughs> uh, un, unintended, but and yet, so <laughs> I mean, so so what I'm interested in is in a worldview that could be rebooted or rediscovered now. I mean, just imagine we lost all of our, you know, we had a, 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 all the libraries burned, the internet went down, we lost all of our texts. How would someone rediscover this thing? Now, I can, we can make an easy case that we could rediscover science. You know, it might take some time. But if the literature of Judaism, in your case, were lost, it, it seems to me patently obvious that whatever is true about reality is still there to be discovered. And, and if, if there's some part of reality that is ethical or spiritual or divine uh, or spooky... It's there, it, it is there to be discovered by sentient creatures such as ourselves. So what would, how would you reboot religion, the, the religion so, that's true? Because you, you are by accident born a Jew. Right. Right. And there's, you know, there are a billion people in India who weren't. Mm -hmm. And I must imagine that on your account, they have, by sheer bad luck, the wrong version of this story. Well, I mean, so Judaism is actually not quite as exclusive as, as a lot of other religions with regard to this. I mean, Judaism actually says that as long as you fulfill seven basic commandments, like don't kill people, don't steal, don't eat the flesh of a living animal, mm -hmm. uh, that, that you actually have a pathway into heaven. So Judaism is not particularly exclusive, and we actually try to discourage converts. So it's not quite the same as some of the other converting religions uh, in monotheism. But as far as what's discoverable, I would agree with you. If, if, if the Torah were to disappear tomorrow, it would not be discoverable, which is why there is a, a necessity for revelation in the Jewish view. Right? The idea is that revelation was necessary, not that revelation was unnecessary, and that if people had not been graced with revelation, they would have come to this on their own. But, but the, the principles you just gave me, you don't think those are discoverable? Those are discoverable, as, right. So these right. Are the, so the, and, and that's the reason why I say that I think that the principles that are granted through revelation hmm. are not necessarily... I, I think that they they caused a ground shift historically from certain ways of thought to other ways of thought. Like the advent of Judeo-Christian thought changed the way of thinking. Mm. But I think that they are also things that you can discover through contemplation, for example. So all of the things that I said about free will and reason and the presence of an unmoved mover, that's more Aristotelian than it is Judeo-Christian. Right. Right? And, that, and that is stuff that was essentially discovered through philosophy, not through revelation. So that is the stuff when I talk about the necessity for reason, uh, that, that's the stuff I think that is more relevant. Now, I think that you do need a religious system in order to inform people who are not going to sit around philosophizing all day uh, what are good and bad modes of behavior. Right. And, you know, Voltaire thought the same. So I, I think that the, the notion of a but, dual... But is it important to believe that those good and bad modes were 
approved of or discouraged by an omniscient being? I mean, can't, can't we just chart a course toward greater fulfillment, greater peaceful collaboration based on just an, an intelligent analysis of what it is to be social so beings? So I, I don't think you can unless you're willing to acknowledge that reason, the capacity to choose, the capacity to act in the world, mm-hmm. that these things exist, and that has to be done based on assumption, because you actually oppose some of these things, right? Like, you don't think free will exists. Yeah, uh, but, so, but I also don't think you need free will to live a moral life. Right, or, I've never really yeah. understood that position, so we'll have to get okay. into it. But, yeah, right, we'll get there. Um, but, it, but, you know, to, to me, if, you, if you're going to have a conversation with someone and convince them, then we need to agree on the value of reason. The value of reason is not something that evolutionary biology suggests. Right? What, what, what does reason have to do with evolutionary biology, per se? It's a, mode of, it's, a, it's a mode of action that is more likely to preserve your species. It doesn't create objective truth. The notion of an objective truth that exists apart from you and would exist whether or not you were living. This is not something that can necessarily be gathered from science alone. Right? You have to make certain assumptions about the universe and the way that your mind reflects what is present in the universe, right? as Kant would, would argue. Well, so, it's true that, that a, an evolutionary perspective on ourselves suggests that we have not evolved to know reality perfectly. I mean, we, you know, if, if you believe that we are apes that have been selected for and, and, and all of our cognitive architecture is built by virtue of its adaptive advantage in, in evolutionary terms, yes, it, it's hard to believe that we are perfectly designed to do mathematics or anything else that is, is true. But you do feel that we can still gather objective truths. But, so. but, but, but that, even that picture suggests a wider context of minds more powerful than our own that could have evolved or our, our own future minds. I mean, this is like there's no... Uh, uh, why would you appeal to minds that have not yet evolved or future minds as opposed to just a creator who put us here with certain capacities? Well, no, because, because that we, I would argue, we don't have any evidence for. What we do have evidence for is that we're here. We, under, we understand a lot about the mechanism that is operating now that got us here and that is causing us to be the way we are. We can see our relationship to other life forms. We know that we can look at chimps that share 99% of our DNA and they obviously share a lot of the evolved precursors of our own social and cognitive architecture, but they have no idea what we're up to, right? So they're cognitively closed to most of what we're doing and most of what we care about. And by, by analogy, we know that we could be cognitively closed to what we might be capable of in a thousand years now. I mean, that, that, that our sense of what engagement with the cosmos I know, but, if promises. but I, guess the, I guess the argument is if you're, if you're arguing that we're cognitively close to certain things, then why are you arguing which specific things we are well, cognitively well, well, close I'm, to? No, I'm just saying that once you, once you admit it's possible to not know what you're missing, factually, ethically, spiritually, I mean, just in, any, in any domain of inquiry, it's possible to come up against a horizon line where the known meets the unknown. You sound kind of religious here. Well, I, <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't be the first to say it, but... <laughs> It's, it's clearly possible not to know what you're missing. And if you, I mean, if you kill... I agree, you should come with you, me to synagogue. If, if you kill the, the hundred... <laughs> I tried that already. Yeah. But I mean, if you, if you kill the, the hundred smartest mathematicians on earth right now, mm-hmm. you would... Eric, you're in trouble. You would close the door <laughs> to certain conversations, maybe for 200 years. I mean, right. You don't, you don't, but so, again, by analogy, it would, be just, it would be just sheer hubris to think that the seven billion of us who are currently here collectively or any one individually have pushed the human conversation to the, the limit of what's rationally apprehendable about the universe. So we know, we know there's more out there in every sense. So you, what you're imagining is that... Not every sense, right? 
Well, no, in, in every sense that, I mean, this, this is why from... from really, the, I'm going to have to have you over for yeah, Sabbath. Yeah, I mean. no, no. <laughs> but from the, from the atheist perspective, or from the perspective of not being convinced of, of any religion, this is what's so limiting about this notion of revelation. Because what you have, you're anchoring a worldview to a book that we know, we just know by the time of its composition and by its actual contents, can't subsume right, so the, you're, so the, the larger worldview that we're gathering every day. So you're arguing past me a little bit, right? Because the, the argument that I was making was based on an Aristotelian philosophical view of an unmoved mover and certain, certain properties that we have to have as human beings in order to create a civilization. And you're but, arguing I mean, back the, to Revelation, which I freely admitted that if Revelation were to be destroyed tomorrow, I could not recreate the Torah from memory. Right? Well, and, no, it's, it's not a matter of not being able to recreate it. It's just that what is its importance apart from being one among... So millions the, of books that have inspired people to... Well, I mean, the, to importance, of, the, the importance of Judeo-Christian revelation in, in our particular context is it is the creator of the entire chain of events, or it is at least the progenitor, along with Greek thought, largely, of an entire chain of events and thought that lead to the establishment of the modern science that you rely upon. Uh, and, well, no, but, but and that's, a, that's a, again, a, that's a set of historical contingencies that are... But they're not coincidences. Uh, they no, are contingencies. Well, no, but there was, but there was no one else. I mean, my argument here is that you could also say that virtually everything that has been accomplished in human history was accomplished by people who didn't know a damn thing about biology, right? Like, just, there was no one else to that's, do the job. Every bridge that was built, that's true. every beautiful building that was built, was built by somebody who knew nothing about DNA, right? Okay. But that's not an argument that ignorance of molecular biology is a good thing or that it should be, it should be maintained. And I'm not arguing right? that ignorance of, uh, is, is, a, is a positive. What I'm arguing is that... Well, no, but I'm just... Well, I would, I would say that any kind of religious... Sectarianism is a, is, a, is a species of ignorance now that we should be, be I mean, that's, that's, outgrowing. That, and, that's, and that's, again, an assumption that you're making based on premises that I don't necessarily agree with. Meaning but that, I mean, that, but on your account, the Hindus have to have it wrong. I mean, they're, they're worshiping an elephant-headed god and you know, a, <laughs> a monkey god. And, you know, I mean, so that, that, I, mean I, I do think so I don't think everybody is right. I mean, I, I, do, right. I do think that the Hindus are not correct, otherwise I wouldn't be Jewish, right? I mean, yeah. like this. Well, so, but that, that, that's what I'm fishing um, but, for. What's the significance? If you're going to go to Aristotle and you're going to go to seven precepts that anyone could discover so as to lead a well-ordered life, what is the significance of being Jewish? So the, the significance of being Jewish is that the, even the foundations of what Aristotle believed, that, he, that he's trying to arrive through, that he's trying to arrive at logically, have to be undergirded by a faith in a God who also provides us some level of moral guidance, because even the precepts of Aristotle are too broad to actually create the civilization upon which we stand. Meaning this is not a Greek civilization. This is a Greek-slash-Judeo-Christian civilization. It's the Athens and Jerusalem in the, in the typical phraseology. And if you just knock out the pillar of Jerusalem, then you're ignoring the impact that Jerusalem has on Athens and that Athens has on Jerusalem, historically speaking. Well, this, this is kind of reminding me of the moment when I, I debated Rick Warren once at Saddleback, just, just in his office. It was just the two of us and John Meacham, who was moderating. And he was, he was telling me that basically without God, you know, people would just be raping and killing. And that you, you require this to, as an anchor for an ethical life. And he even said of himself, I mean, I, I don't believe this when, when anyone says this, but this is sort of the, the bluff that never gets called. He said of himself that without, if he didn't believe there was a hell, he would be raping and killing. And, and, yeah, and I don't, and that, I don't agree with that. Right. Uh, that's actually not, that's actually not right. something that I, I fully agree with, but I do agree with the idea that without a... I'm glad to hear that. 
Fair enough. But, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but what I do believe uh, is that a scientific materialist worldview cannot construct a moral system because is has nothing to do with ought. Science is about is and has no capacity to say anything about ought other than constructions that are based in a notion of free will that you yourself reject. I mean, I'm happy to get into all of that. If, you know, time is short, but I've written two books on, on those two. I know, I've read them. <laughs> but if that were true, how would you explain the moral character of my life? I mean, assuming I'm not raping and killing people or, yeah, no, or, no, or living, just, or, or living just, a very a life that you would recognize to be glad ethically to hear that, yeah. <laughs> well structured. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I mean, as I just, I mean, I just said moments ago, I don't think that you have to be a religious person to lead a moral life. I do think that there has to be a religious underpinning to a moral system because I don't think that you can, you're using terminology that is based in certain assumptions about human nature that I'm not sure that you are recognizing that you reject. Right? If you, let, let's take the scientific materialist worldview at its very base. Okay? At its very base, we are basically balls of meat wandering through the universe with a bit of self-awareness attached. We're sort of Spinoza's stones that have been thrown. And we know that we've been thrown. We don't have control over our own behavior. We don't have control over what we do. We don't have the capacity well, no. to react. No. Well, first of all, many people who would take an evolutionary picture of ourselves also imagine that we have free will. I've never understood that perspective, to be uh, honest with you. I'll put the free will piece in play here because actually, actually I think there are moral insights we can have when we see through the illusion of free will, which we, we really can't easily have without doing that. And then I, I want to bring you in here, Eric. <laughs> very, very patient. Not falling for that twice. <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the part of the problems, one of the problems is, is that in some very weird way, because uh, Ben is wearing a kippah, uh, we think of him as being very orthodox, pious, and religious. In fact, I'm always struck by just how much he eschews uh, any appeal uh, to text in his public argument. So for functional reasons, uh, I very often see him in a largely atheistic context. I find, Sam, that you're always focused on um, what is, to my way of thinking, very clearly a form of Judaism uh, expressed as atheism. <laughs> um, and that, that really does sound anti-Semitic somehow. I'm gonna, I'll have to ask my rabbi how I just got insulted. I don't know, Sam, how much are you being paid tonight? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, as much as I take a scientific worldview, um, I find that if I'm really honest with myself, uh, I have a lot of uh, cer certainly dialectical tensions that I can't resolve, needs for meaning that I can't find easily met within the rational systems. I think that the is and ought is, is a good distinction. I think a lot of this has to do with uh, pre-existing architecture that predisposes us, uh, even though our rational minds may know better, uh, towards something that functions very much in an as-if religious context. Well, let's just take is and ought for a second, because I mean, here's one way those two things collapse for me. If understanding how the universe is altogether you know, all the possibilities of experience, all the ways minds emerge, all of the kinds of good lives and bad lives and all of the mechanisms that would determine one path over another, a complete understanding of, of the mind and the cosmos, that's all, that's all the is, all the is there, that is there to be understood. If understanding that couldn't give you a complete picture of what you ought to do, where would you go to get that picture? 
If you sum all the facts, how does that not give you a way to chart your course in this universe? Well, uh, what, uh, what else is there to inform your life? Well, there are these things that we notice in our minds that we can, you know, that run through our fingers like quicksilver that aren't exactly facts. These intuitions, these things that gnaw at us, even though we know the answer, we feel superstitious, so we feel guilt. You know, how economists talk about utility as a one-dimensional object, uh, but how many kinds of utility and disutility? I can be happy, I can be interested, I can be fulfilled. You know, all these different ways of tagging, mm. you know, utilities and disutilities. And if you just notice your mind, um, you'll notice that there are all sorts of things going on in it that really aren't about aren't about facts. And I don't know where they originate, neither do you. But see, wait, what, but to just, just translate what you're saying, sure. how I'm hearing what you're saying, you're, you're telling me facts about the mind, which I, I agree with. I, I mean, there's, there's kind of a Congress I mean, in there. You guys decided that there was an like objective reality uh, when you were having that conversation. Hmm. And, <laughs> and I suppose that there's probably objective reality, but I think that a lot of what goes on is, is that we've been in the shallow end uh, of science where more or less, you know, me and let's say this gentleman over here uh, share... Uh, enough that we can probably agree that the square root of two is provably irrational. I believe that that's probably an objective fact, but I don't believe proof-checking is objective because we have things like the Amabi problem that's in the literature for years, and we think it's proved, but it turns out we didn't have the right proof. You know, So we have situations in which we've been picking low-hanging, easy fruit to, to console ourselves that we, we can all get at the objective reality. We've all seen optical illusions where, you know, some color is exactly the same wavelength, but it looks two different mm. ways because of the surroundings. Okay, but, but, so that's, that's a great example. Just, let's well, linger there for a second. So, right. so, again, we thought we knew what we were talking about, and then we mm. find out at a deeper level that we didn't, and then we think we know what we're talking about again, and then it can reverse again. But, but that move to the deeper level mm -hmm. is more facts. It's more context. It's more objectivity. Right, but we, also, we already agreed on something that turned out not to be true as objective right. fact. And then, well, so so this, this, the point is, is that I'm not entirely sure uh, in any of these. Like, if I take this irrationality of the square root of two, there's a concept called not worth worrying about. You know? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just, yeah. Well, that does a it's, lot of work. It's just not worth worrying about whether or not somebody's going to find a mistake in that proof because it's so short. You know, when it comes to something like the ABC conjecture, you know, it's been going on for how many years? We still haven't, you know, gotten our, our arms around it. We're now not in the shallow end quite so much. And so my concern is, is that it doesn't do a lot of damage to say we can prove that the square root of two is, is irrational and that that's an objective fact hmm. up until you start trying to extend that, you know, to more and more complicated proofs. And you know, then it, it actually matters that the original concept was the outside proof may exist, but proof checking isn't objective, and therefore we may never exactly know, but there are things that aren't worth worrying about, and we call them objective fact for convenience. Sorry. All right, well, so, well, so, so let, let me make a, an objective, what I think is an objective claim of fact that I think has moral, that, that you won't agree with, Ben, that I think has moral consequence that we should grapple with. So that, and it, so it connects to a, a very real-world issue like wealth inequality, right? So wealth inequality is a problem if you think it's a problem or, or it's inevitable if you think it's inevitable, but it's, I think everyone would agree that some level of wealth inequality would be intolerable and that we would want to correct for it, but 
wealth inequality is just one kind of inequality. There's every other kind of inequality. And there's this fact that, w that none of us, and this, this goes to the free will issue. So, so what, we, what we imagine is that people, they have some, a certain inheritance. They have, they, they have their genes. They have their environments. They, you, know, you didn't pick the fact that you weren't born yesterday in, in Syria. You, you, were, you were born in a stable society when you were born. We, don't own, we can't truly own all of our advantages. We didn't make ourselves. But most people feel that there's something like a ghost in the machine that has free will that can make the best of even a bad situation. Now, I think you probably agree that some situations are so bad that you know, the deck can be so stacked against you that, you know, it's just life is unfair. I think, I mean, here are claims about you that I, that, that I think are true and have, have kind of, should be morally salient. You didn't make yourself you didn't determine anything about yourself that you would use as an exercise of your own free will. So you're, you're very intelligent, you're very literate, you're very interested in things that get you ahead in, in all the ways you, you've gotten yourself ahead. You didn't create that about yourself, right? And obviously there's, there's a genetic component to that, there's an environmental component to that, there's a, maybe there's just you know, cosmic ray bombardment that can help mm -hmm. or hurt. Who knows what, what influences are there, but none of that is something that you have authored. And that's true of everyone in the room. You have exactly the disposition you have, the effort you have. If you wake up tomorrow morning with twice the capacity for effort and grit that you had yesterday, you won't know where that came from. If it, if it comes from a book you read, you can't determine the fact that the book had precisely the influence that it had and not a little bit less or a little bit more. You are part of a system of influences. And so this is a picture, in my view, that just makes a mockery of the notion of free will. Right, it, it, and it's, okay. it goes down to the, the smallest mm -hmm. possible case of you know my getting to the end of the sentence. Right, it's right. just you know like if, if I have a stroke now, well then you know sorry I can't do it, but I didn't and I didn't choose that either. So now that I think I think it, it, taking that on board does not rob us of morality. I think because what, because we still have a preference between an excruciating plunge into civil war and, and needless misery and building a viable global civilization where the maximum number of people thrive. So You're like, using a lot of active verbs for a person who is no, we're, we're a product active. of environment and genetics. Well, no, but, no, but it's, all, it, it's all happening. Like if I were, we, we can build robots that act, right? And we are, I'm moving my hands now, but I honestly don't but know how. But is the how. robot moving the hands? Or, I mean, is it, <laughs> but the, the, the point that I'm making is when you say we can, we can discern, we can build, we can create, we can... You know, we can decide. But it's exactly, is, like, is, it's exactly like you speaking now. You, are, you don't know how you follow the rules of English grammar. I'm not, I'm not arguing that you can't make a convincing case that I don't have free will. I'm arguing that you can't make a convincing case you can build a civilization on lack of free will. Take this case, uh, I mean, the moral relevance of this, and Eric, I'd be interested to know if you agree with this. It seems to me that once you admit you, you either won the lottery or you didn't on some level, that conveys a kind of ethical commitment or an ethical obligation that you wouldn't otherwise have. You can't be the person who, who then Why? says everyone just is basically you're, you're on your own. You either make it based on your effort or not. I mean, this goes to questions of, you know, should we have universal health care? It's not just a it's not just an economic Again, you're, you're answer. Going, you're going directly from is to ought with no stop on the train at all. Well, I mean, no, it's, it's just it's, for, for, for literally decades. There, there were very wealthy and very sophisticated countries that took the premises that you are building upon and built some of the most repressive regimes in history. 
Well, right. no, the but idea they, that, but they, had, they had other things going on. They had bad ideas of economics. I agree. They had, they had well, personality cults. They had. I agree with all of that. Right. But the point that I'm making is that you are you are making definitive statements about value judgments with reference to a naturally selected interaction of, of biology and environment. I just don't know how you're getting from one to the other. Owning the, the truth of biology does I mean, do not... robots have morality is what I'm asking you. Well, they, that, they, is, they, is, no, they certainly would if we built them to have conscious states that they could allow for suffering and well-being. I mean, that, that's coming. We're going to have to so, ask that question. So then we can be God, but God can't make us those kind of robots? Is the argument? Well, no, but... but should, we, should we maybe try taking the fun out of this? I thought I was trying. <laughs> so... You know, one possibility is that there's like a layer cake, and at the bottom you've got, you know, quantum field theory, and then you get organic chemistry, and you build this thing up, and mm. you've got natural and sexual selection, and then you get, you know, systems of morality writing on top of this. And there's some sort of weird category er error between the layers of this cake. So it may be that uh, if you can get rid of uh, quantum uh, indeterminacy, that you have effectively Laplacian determinism and everything is a product of initial conditions. Uh, and that takes place at the lowest level. But there's no morality at the level of, uh, you know, exciting fields and electrons and quarks. So, you know, you don't put, pair that observable, which is like, you know, that, right. that quark is being unethical right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, with some behavior which, you know, affected whether some synapse, you know, fired. So that's that morality thing has to do with this very high up layer, which is some sort of social organization, which is not fundamental. And so what, what I hear us doing is talking about free will down here, and talking about morality up here. And you know, one of the lessons of, of, of physics is, is that you every layer of the cake has... Well, it has its own language game associated with it. And yes, can, can make, we call those observables, yeah, right? Yeah. And so those observables are paired with what we might call effective theories, right? And so these effective theories are not to be mixed up. And so every time we get into one of these free will conversations, I don't know whether you're talking about free... We have as if free will. Who, who was forced to buy a ticket to tonight's event, you know? Well, no, so, well, no but to answer that question, really, so like, so like, like did, did, you, did you actually... I didn't have to buy one. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, the night, the night is young. You guys should yeah. totally get in yeah. on this thing. Um, but... But the point is, is that I'm perfectly happy with the idea that I have as if free will at the top of the layer cake, and, and uh, if we can get rid of uh, quantum observation and get back to Laplacian determinism at some higher level, that I have no free will. But, but it's as if free will only because you actually are not aware of the proximate cause of your action in each yeah, moment. I mean, if I look at a chaotic pendulum uh, over at the Exploratorium, it may have a very clear... Uh, path that's determined through Newtonian mechanics, but I'm not smart enough to figure it out. So effectively, I'm su super surprised. I just sit there like an idiot, twirling and thinking, oh, wow, I didn't think it was going to do that, you know, even though I know the physics, right? So, right. so the, the point is, is that if I try to compute something that's much larger than I am, my computer can't handle that much larger system. So, you know, this is why sort of self-reflection leads to madness very often. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought you said but this I'm was going to be fun. Really, hopefully it's not that often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm still really interested in the app that you're coming out with for meditation. <laughs> um, yeah. don't, uh, don't hold your breath, but it is coming. Okay. Yeah. But, but what I'm trying to get at is, is that the fun part of these conversations comes from making these category errors. Uh, and the unfun part comes from sorting it out. And then, you know, when, when, I, when I've played Johnny Raincloud, 
everybody will say, well, okay, I guess that makes sense, but it's no fun anymore. And so that's, that's what I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. Well, but you would still, you're not disparaging the idea of a unity of knowledge, right? You're not, at each layer of the cake, you can make a smooth transition between layers that doesn't Maybe you, that I usurp can't your understanding of each layer. I mean, I have a fair idea um, when my wife's going to be angry at me for not doing the dishes, but I can't recover it from quantum field theory, right? Well, so the idea is that maybe that the quantum field theory determines her behavior. No, but, you're, but there's nothing about doing dishes that, it, that violates quantum field theory. You hear one, that, one, one presumes. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's not that you have to live in a different worldview in order to talk about the human relations layer, the, the, the moral layer, the free will layer, or not. I can do my best, but I, I don't find it useful to try to think about human psychology from the point of view of... Uh, of quarks. Some, yeah. Of quarks. Yeah. But, you know, can, could organic chemistry, if, if, if some neurotransmitter is depleted... Yeah, you know, so, so there are some ways in which these different layers can talk to each other, but there's no reason that I should be able to compute necessarily across these layers successfully, even if there is some sort of concept of entailment or, or determination. What I'm interested in is kind of a first principle methodology of moving forward into the unknown, right? So like, so the, the, what, I, what I object to in religion and in this notion of revelation is that there was some prior century where we were given the best ideas we're ever going to have on a specific topic, and we must cling to those ideas until the end of time. This is the analogy that, or the, the rubric that, that I find most convincing. I, I, it's like there's, there's only ever been people talking about reality here, right? And you can, so you, therefore you can either locate yourself in a current, modern, open-ended conversation, or you can anchor yourself to an ancient one and never so, give yourself the freedom to rethink it. So, and, and you could have done it with Homer, you could have done it with Aristotle, you could have done it with Shakespeare, and the Hindus have done it with the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and you're, you're losing no sleep over whether or not you should do likewise, right? And so I, my sense is that we need to... Every question of, of societal importance requires that we now outgrow the accidents of merely contingent history outgrow the fact that people used to be living in geographical isolation from one another and linguistic isolation from one another for centuries and outgrow, therefore, our religious provincialism and just get to a common humanity that's using the best tools available to solve the hardest problems. So I have a couple of quick responses to that. The best tools available are all predicated on assumptions that can only be made about human action and that you fundamentally reject. Again, Things like reason, well, but, things but, like free will. Why are we having a conversation here tonight? Why did anyone show up here tonight? Okay, but this is a philosophical confusion that, that you're... Let me try to just address it. Reason does not require free will. Reason requires a... Convincing a, me. Having a mind that can follow an argument and, but, and can care about whether or not you're following it. But me responding accurately. to your argument is not a matter of choice at that point. So what's it's never, the point? But, but, it's, but the thing is, reason is never a matter of choice. If I convince you... Then why you, is reason superior to amygdala response, passionate amygdala response? Well, because one, it, it's scalable. It? One, it's, it's, it's... If I give you sufficiently good reasons for anything... Right. You will helplessly believe what I believe. It won't be a matter of choice. You never choose what but you why believe. But why are you giving me those reasons? If I prove to you that... Again, I, you're using a lot of active verbs for a guy who has no capacity to choose himself. Well, no, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing... Uh, no, no, no. That, 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 you're using my language, and then you're building a house using the bricks that I'm giving you. No, no, the, to, to stick with reason, the, the one brick. 
reason is a mode of, of influence whereby if you, if you see the, the syllogism actually runs through, right, or that to speak of reason even more broadly, if I give you a, a, a set of facts that persuade you of something that, that before this moment you were unaware of or thought was untrue, you will helplessly take that on board if you're reasoning, right? So if, if I show you that 2 so plus 2 makes 4 and you can't see it any other way even though you wish it made 5, you will helplessly believe that 2 plus 2 makes 4. You don't choose it. You never choose it. Well, it's, not, mean, it's, 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 it's the prototypical given, given instance... Our, given our current situation, I would argue that a lot of people choose not to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, yeah, but that's a failure of rationality. I agree. But you're not making a moral case for rationality. No, no, you're making an effective case no, for no, rationality. I, no, I'm making a, I'm, I'm making a case that, that rationality is the quintessential moment where free will is not in evidence. If I show you... Is he, and then I'm asking you, why you, you, do you, you care? You, you're, no, 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 but th- th- that's changing the subject. Let's, let's just take this one brick. No, that was always my subject. You're, no, but you're, you're saying you can't have reason without free will, or the reason presupposes no, I, free no, will. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that you cannot have reason without making an assumption about the, uh, about the function of the human mind that is not evidenced by evolutionary biology or science. No, no, reason, reason maps on... Well, Eric, Eric, help me here, but... <laughs> Reason, in my view, reason maps this. on to reality. I yeah. mean, there, there's a fit between, it's not a, it's not a perfect fit, I and mean, hence our predicament, but... What I'm asking is why you no, think, reason, why you think but, the firing but, of certain neurons is more morally appropriate than the firing of other neurons? Sorry, well, I would be happy to get to that, but let me just stick with reason for a second. Reason, I mean, was... reason maps on to reality, that's why it is reason. Like, so, again, so, like, just arithmetic. If I take two objects, you know, I have two oranges here, and I hide them, and I add two more, right? You're just, you're, in order to have form any rational expectation of what's now behind the chair, you're doing arithmetic, right? That's, that's just reasoning about objects. It's not, the, yes. the, the fact that that is so reliably... But you're making, here's, here's the problem, the, I think, the, and the disconnect we're having. I'm not arguing that don't, you don't agree reason exists. I'm arguing no. that your whole mode of creating a societal morality is based on this sort of, th- this reason. And you're making a moral argument that reason is superior to any other method of eliciting a response. The way that you are talking about reason is that reason is basically a key and you stick it in the lock of my thinking and suddenly the door opens. Well, so well, why well, is that? So I, I'm asking you, there are many ways to open that door, including using a battering ram, which has been the preferred method of most governments over history. Mm. You need to make an argument to me why it is more moral how are you getting to the ought of reason without any appeal to a morality that exists beyond you? Especially when you get to complex moral questions that are not 2 plus well, 2 equals 4. They're complex moral questions like what the tax rate should be. Okay, but we have a situation in which reason is clearly the best technique for doing certain things. There are certain things for which that is the primary tool, right? But there are probably, I mean, I could, I could advance the argument that when I need to defeat a prisoner's dilemma in order to win with somebody I love very dearly, that somehow I go into some sort of weird reverent state and the two of us agree not to screw each other over and we get mm. better outcomes and it can be that that gives me um, a better outcome than if I had just applied reason in a particular way or maybe it's not clear which reason to apply or if I ask you the question, what is the square root of negative one? And you say, well... There is no square root of negative one until some years later somebody comes up with the complex numbers, right? 
there's a lot of nuance here, and I would say that I don't usually want to use reason, uh, you know, when I stumble on a, on a bear, you know, because yeah. it just takes too long. Um, but, the, but the, I mean, that's, it's not irrational to run from a bear. You don't have to de delude yourself running. about anything or to fight a bear. <laughs> so it's not, it's not like, this is the old trope of, you know, be prove to me you love your wife, right? I mean, this is like, this is what, ha this is what Rick Warren says when you walk into his office. No, all, um, all I'm suggesting is, is that we have responses that are adaptive, responses that are maladaptive. Reason has this beautiful capacity that I can force, like if, if I'm in a math department, somebody hates my guts and they don't want to accept something, I can usually wrestle them to the ground. We don't need a referee, and they will finally cry uncle and say, yes, you proved it to me, right? right. So this is like a beautiful thing, and I think you're very attached to it. I like it a lot. But if you, know, if you notice that if you try this not on, in a math department but on Twitter, it doesn't work nearly as well. <laughs> right? so, so fundamentally, people are able to escape very, very easily, and they don't even mm -hmm. seem to notice or care but we acknowledge that that is a, a failure of rationality that should matter to them. And, it, and the thing is, it does, it, no, but it does matter to them when they notice it in others. And it can matter to them when you can show it to them in themselves, right? I mean, are you just closing the door to a hope that, that conversation can ever get us to converge with people? No, 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 who are, no, no, no. But I am trying to say that fundamentally um, I get into arguments in which well, you, you know, if you, take, if you take Ben's rules for arguing with leftists, right? Uh, you know, the whole point is, can I get you to agree to this? Can I get you to agree to that? Like, it's a, it's a series of endgame chess moves, right? right? And, and pretty soon, you know, he's got two, two rooks on the back rank, and, and your king has nowhere to go. And somebody says, you know, okay, I think you sort of got me, but I bet if I went home, uh, I could figure out what it is that I agreed to that, that proved to me that an eight-celled embryo is actually a human life that has to be protected, and I don't think that that's right. Right? And so, right. Well, you know, but, we, we all have these intuitions that are fighting our emotions, that are fighting our reason, and, and this kind of complex Mexican standoff, um, I hope that's not insensitive, hmm. but uh, <laughs> it's 2017 people, yeah. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> that we don't really understand entirely. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think you can make a very powerful case for how well reason can work. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people will show up when you decide to visit San Francisco. It, you know, you can do more with reason than I can. I, I have to use all sorts of crazy hacks and, uh, and emotion and intuition in order to get where I'm going. And I don't think I, I can we, do it. We, we might be bounding reason as just a kind of a set of operations a little differently because I again back to the bear right I mean the antithesis to reason is not emotion I mean this the split between reason and emotion is has always been false and what you feel when you're pretty sure that what I'm saying is bullshit mm -hmm. is an emotion right that the feeling of doubt the feeling of no 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 you got it wrong that sense that you want to jump in before I embarrass myself further right that's a feeling I mean, that's, we, we, we understand the neurology of that, and people who, who can't feel the consequence emotionally of their own incoherence, don't, I mean, they're just happy to confabulate, right? They're just, they have no truth testing, and one of them is now running the country. <laughs> but it's, it matters, again, to, to come back to your point, it matters because it's the only thing that scales. It's the only thing that you can put over the transom to a total stranger who is sane and who cares to have his map of the world actually fit the world, 
to a first approximation. It's the only, I mean, it's, it's like, how, do you, how did we all get to this theater tonight? You know, you make a left, you make a right, you make a left, you go, I mean, like, the, the, the directions worked for everybody. Yeah, it's the huge work. Right. Right. I mean, like, we're, we're sitting under some super dangerous thing. We just trust that somebody went to engineering school, used a lot of reason, yeah. uh, because otherwise we're toast, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's just starting to bug me. But, um, <laughs> but, but the issue is, is that, okay. So but you, you, you don't need an unmoved mover to sit under this thing. You just need to know that somebody did their job. Right. But the somebody who did their job with regard to the universe would be the unmoved mover from the religious point of view. But what confuses me about Ben's perspective is, is that I think Ben has a, and we talked about this before, is that Ben talks about the unmoved mover in terms of what sounds to me like a boundary condition, which is not something that I would get up uh, on Saturday morning to pray to, for sure. <laughs> um, you know. But then I think Ben has this much more personal uh, God that uh, accepts petitions and gives instructions that he's much more reluctant to talk about in the same terms because he absolutely wants to play nice with us uh, who are not possessed of as much belief. And so I don't know Ben well enough to know uh, how we we get from Ben 1 to Ben 2, which I think would be very interesting. but I think that, you know, in part, what you and I come out of is this, uh, to be honest, but an Orthodox Jewish tradition that uh, converts very nicely uh, for periods of time into this, uh, I, you know, I can't bring myself uh, to believe all this, uh, this stuff in the five books of Moses, so I'll embrace social justice, morality, and a lot of, uh, a lot of philosophizing using these same techniques that were, were used in uh, my great-grandfather's shul. Right, but, but again, the, the, the primacy of reason and the, and the promise of it is that it's the only thing that stands a chance here of being universal in even a, a, a way that's beyond humanity, right? I mean, this, whatever we're calling reason, ultimately, yeah. is going to be inscribed in the future machines. Okay, that, but, that, yeah, I think, but again, you look the, at like the, Kerala, the, right, and you have the school of astronomy that came up with infinite series and almost got to the calculus before... Newton and Leibniz, and mm. what were they? They were doing it in religious verse in India, where they practiced that wrong religion, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that wrong religion was also coming up with unbelievable stuff. And I think what, right. what it really has to do with is there is some set of hooks that have to be hooked in the human mind that have something to do with religion or morality or some kind of social construction, so that we don't spend our time, you know, coveting uh, our, our, our neighbors. Uh, uh, oxen yep. or, or wives or what have you, and almost <laughs> wives plural. Yeah. And it's covering your neighbor's ass. But that's yeah. reserved for Congress. <laughs> but uh, but what we keep doing is we keep finding this. Uh, there is some sort of conserved Platonic or prototypical religion that each of our religions are some sort of you know particular instantiation of. And mm. I think that what's tough is is that once you get to the point where you actually you know, swim back up and you say, I really have no idea why I believe that original thing. Okay, that's fine. But you still have something that needs to go there or the whole thing begins to disintegrate. And that's why all three of us, in my opinion, are living in some kind of tension between reason and that other thing. And it's hard to talk about that other thing because it doesn't lend itself to the language of reason. But, you know, 
I do, well, I get, this, this is where I, I, I still get confused. I don't see, the departure from reason for me is where you're pretending to know something you don't know, right? Mm. You're, pre- you're pretending to think that something is great evidence when it's, it's obviously not great evidence and you recognize it to not be great evidence when someone else does it by another name. So I mean, presumably you're not losing sleep over whether to convert to Islam. You see that there are 1.7 billion Muslims playing a very similar language game with a very similar book, but you really don't care about that language game and you don't care about that book. And you can see that their fixation on this revealed tradition is probably not what the universe is all about, right? And so, so my sense is you could sort of triangulate on any tradition that way. I mean, you could certainly. I mean, I, I don't, I don't fully disagree with you. I mean, I think that the, that the point of faith and revelation in any religion is going to be that it's relatively easy to attack. Uh, I, I don't actually think that that's... Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it's a rational thing to believe that God talked to a bunch of people on a mountain. Of course, that's not a rational thing. Right, especially what, when he's done it many times on many mountains, and, and these are irreconcilable. Well, I mean, but again, it's not rational, so I don't believe that he did it many times on many mountains. I think he did it once on one mountain. But the, but the fact is that, you know, the, but, but the fact that... What, what, but the problem is this, and I've said this to, you know, in expectation of, of talking to you, mm-hmm. I've been saying this to, to people, that what I find is that it's very easy to tear down revelation. I think it's actually relatively easy to tear down any moral system that's based on atheism. What's very difficult is to build a moral but, but, system. But no, nothing's based on atheism. I, mean, atheism I agree, nothing is based on atheism. I'm with you. No, but I mean, atheism is not... Atheism is just not accepting any of these religious claims but you I may, offer. You are I mean, making, it's like non-Mormonism. Th- this is the part that I really just don't understand. The, the part that I, that I really, on a fundamental level, and I keep asking it about five different ways, uh, and maybe I'm just thick. Uh, it's possible. Uh, the, and that is, you're making a lot of value systems and then citing reason as though you can derive these value-based judgments well, no, no. from the nature well, of the that... universe, and that has not been true for the vast majority of human history and is not true well, now in the vast history. majority of places it, it, across the world. History, we, we won't draw these lessons from history. I mean, history is, is generations of confused people, just like ourselves. You know, and, and but you that's... seem less confused, so I'm asking well, what no, makes I mean, you less confused. What, one thing I think I'm less confused about is that we have... Uh, and this, is, this actually, I think, is a point of confusion that was relevant here. It's not that everything is based on reason. I mean, you can't justify everything, right? You can just begin to see what works, right? Like, it's not like, so yeah, is it utilitarian morality that you're, you're espousing? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I, wouldn't, I, I don't answer to that name happily because I think there's a lot of confusion built into the way we teach that I mean, topic. Utilitarianism school, also, right? I mean, you know, it has inherent value judgments about what exactly is worth preserving and what exactly is worth destroying. Well, just, so you're making assumptions there as well. The, no, the, it's, it's not a matter of assumptions. It's a matter of, of just realizing that we live in a space of possible experience. And experience can get very, very bad or it can get very, very good. And we have no idea how bad it can get. I and mean, we have some sense of how bad it can get and we don't want to go there. But it can, presumably it can get much worse in different minds I mean, of the sort that we don't have But the question, now, now you do end up in a place of radical subjectivism because well, the question is no, bad for it, whom it, and from what perspective? It, no, no, it's not, it, it's, it's not subjectivism. It's just, it, in fact, it's honoring the fact that what we're calling subjective experience is part of the cosmos. This universe has an interior dimension that you know, I would call consciousness. So it, there are systems that it is like something to be, right? The lights have turned on, and we, uh, you know, I'd be the first to admit that we don't understand how that happens scientifically yet. We don't, we don't understand the relationship between consciousness and the brain in any way that I can defend at the moment. But uh, presumably the brain is involved, and we have, we have a good reason to believe that that's the case. But we have this, what I consider a navigation problem, 
We as conscious systems can plunge into excruciating misery or we can, based on all of the tools that we can get our hands around, and reason is one of them, begin to collaborate in a way that allows for more and more beauty and creativity and insight and flourishing. And we know we like that, right? And we, and we don't have to justify that. So are you using that. just a pleasure pain matrix? Or? No, it's, it's everything. Every conceivable facet of what you would recognize as your well-being and facets yet to be discovered. And again, I mean, we were having a talk backstage about psychedelics. So the, one of the virtues... One, one of the virtues of psychedelics is that, if nothing else, it will prove to you that it is possible to have a very different experience than the one you're tending to have. I'll take and, that one on faith. And, and, that, <laughs> and, and certainly some of the experiences that people have on psychedelics seem to cash out the, the kinds of claims that mystics and, and, and very religious people have made through mm-hmm. the ages. I mean, it's very easy to see the psychedelic experience through a, a kind of cl- archetypically religious lens. But, you know, I would argue we need not. There's other ways to react to a burning bush beyond becoming an Orthodox Jew or a fundamentalist Christian. And I think we need a 21st century response well, it's, it's all, to, to profundity. Know, it's, it's, you know, to be frank, it's all very pithy to make, you know, snide statements about biblical references and all that's well I, I, I understand but it's and and the imagery is patently metaphorical and or ridiculous right i mean there's no getting around that well, and that's actually, true actually not if you take acid you it, it's it can be quite literal <laughs> i mean that, uh, i mean and again i mean i don't mean yeah, to be flippant about this but it's like there is an experience you can have and again it's not you don't need psychedelics to have it but there's just an experience you you can have if you pay sufficient attention you can have an encounter with nature that, I mean, a burning bush is yeah, but, a little more than a metaphor. But there, but there, but are, these, there are these primitives, right, that we are sort of embarrassed to say that we trade off against. So in my case, I often say that it's truth, meaning, fitness, and grace, right? Mm-hmm. And so very often, if I just do truth and just try to figure out, is, you know, is the glass here or it's not, uh, I don't find that very fulfilling. I have this concept of meaning. Things, certain things feel meaningful, it's very hard for me to say what that is. It just seems to be a primitive that came with, you know, tog- toggled uh, in my mind. Uh, fit, you know, fitness, uh, if what you're doing isn't successful, you, you, your lineage doesn't get to keep playing. So if somebody, you know, puts a gun to my head and asks me questions, I try to figure out what answers they want to hear, not, not what answers are true. Uh, you know, and grace is this weird quality where, um, you know, if I had to take issue with Ben when he talks about, uh, you know, somebody insisting that they use gender pronouns that don't match genotype and phenotype, I, you know, my feeling is, is that it's not a violation of truth. Uh, it's a violation of grace. It just, I extend it as a courtesy temporarily before somebody takes it someplace where I have to retract it. You know, that's a small difference. And so, you know, fundamentally, when I, when I brought that up on, you know, mm. on your podcast, there's like all of these people on Reddit who are like, okay, he's just admitting that he's not about truth, you know, and it's, it's this, you get into this truth mania without recognizing that you trade off against truth. We all do. Well, no, so again, this is a place where either I don't totally oh, take your point or, or I disagree, but I, what I think you want is for those things to cohere in a way that doesn't violate truth, right? So that way you don't have to lie to yourself to get the grace and the fitness and the... I lie to myself. <laughs> but, but, uh, so do yeah. these people and so do yeah. you 
Well, but, well, well, but, 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 not, no, but not, well, is that the only way to get the meaning and the grace that you want? And I would say that's not the case. I mean, so meaning be- can become uncoupled from truth in a way that you would acknowledge is synonymous with madness, right? If you find meaning in things that no one else can recognize as meaningful and you talk too much about it, you're the person that, who gets locked well, I up. I practice right? this, right? So when, when my son and I drive to school, I always tell him that I look at the license plates and they say things to me like, there's WMD right in front of me. It's like, I found WMD, hmm. you know, or I found his name the other day. And he says like, dad, this is really creeping me out. And I said, well... <laughs> But it's important to notice what it feels like to discern meaning where there is no meaning. It's important to be in touch with that as-if-madness experience in order to guard against madness. So I think that you have to... I am open, for example, to suspending my insistence on truth for periods of time. When I give the example of, uh, you know, square root of negative one, whoever figured out the complex numbers probably started saying... There's no solution. There's no solution. Okay, what if something, I don't even know what it is, and you're groping around in the dark, and the hand-waving comes out, and you start lying about things. Mm. And, then, and then you can find them, right? And so you, you sort of take an advance on the truth, and you go into these other spaces, and, and then hopefully, if you're, if you're lucky, you get to higher ground, and you can start talking about truth all over again. Yeah, but, but, that, but that's, that's a kind of happy spiral, which is not the same thing as delusion, or it's, like you're, it's not sustained delusion. I mean, it's like not sustained delusion. Basically, you, you, you want to say you want to perturb your, your consciousness in ways so as to depart from rigor so that you can get back to rigor a, a better... Right, but it is delusion for a period of time, as, as per your acid trip, right? You know, well, and, and, and... I did have an acid trip where I... <laughs> I was not planning to confess my psychedelic misadventures. It seems apropos, and, and this story will prevent Ben from ever trying acid. Uh, <laughs> this is a perfect example of meaning and awe and everything else, all the good stuff becoming uncoupled from its appropriate object. I was on acid, needless to say, and staring at a photograph, I was staring at a human face that I was taking to be just the most kind of radiant exemplar of sainthood I had ever seen. President Trump. And I'm (laughs) almost almost as inappropriate. Uh, And I'm staring at this thing and having, you know, the the beatific vision in the eyes of another. And, you know, if anyone has ever taken acid and looked at a photograph, you know that this can, of a a person, you know what I mean. But I was so staring in awe for an eternity Uh, And then when I came down to the point where I could recognize who I was staring at, it was a cover of TV Guide (laughs) with Dick Van Dyke (laughs) looking looking completely maniacal. so yes, I mean you can you, you you can have the beatific vision in a you know a puddle of coke on the on the sidewalk. Yeah. And, and but but it, and for some it, reason you've never let go of bye bye birdie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm worried we're going to have a sixth book of Moses before long. But the but the issue is I think we want, I mean that the struggle is to get the most meaningful moments personally and the most useful ways of thinking personally and collectively to align in such a way that we can... I mean, the, the only way to play a language game successfully with other people is to not have it be the cover of TV Guide and Dick Van Dyke and have it be something that is a, a, an appropriate object of everyone else's attention so, so that you can, you can communicate your experience of meaning. I mean, that's the challenge of remaining sane and collaborating with others. 
Well, there's one one sane person in a room of 2,000. Well, listen, I think I think we need the wisdom and sanity of the crowd at this moment. So we are going to now just immediately open it up to questions from you all. We've raised a few topics here. And so, so we'll just go left and right until we, we run out of time. We have about 40 minutes, uh, I would say. And so the people who are standing at the back of the line should feel a sense of acute hopelessness. Um, <laughs> so, but the people at the front of the line, we will definitely get to you. So I, we'll, go, we'll get as far as we can get. Uh, but as you can see, we're long-winded. So here, over here, thank you. And can we turn the lights up a little bit more so we can... See everyone? When we talk about radical subjectivism, the first thing that I thought of was religion seems radically subjective in everyone's interpretation of particular scripture, what they believe. And my question, the more questions we're going to talk about, um, I would like you guys to talk about religious liberty. I know that that's important to you, but I know that you mentioned that a few times. And um, I just want to really see the echo on that. Sure. So, I mean, if the question was for me, uh, it's yeah, hard to hear a little bit. I just want to say to the sound guy, there's there's kind of a reverb happening on on these. Uh, I found that a little hard. And to maybe it hear. needs to come yeah. through the monitors rather than the ambience. Yeah. If whatever you can. Experiment with with the, the Q and A sound so, freely. If the so the question I, I think was about the masterpiece cake shop case that's before the Supreme Court currently, uh, and basically, you know, the, if the question is what are you allowed to do as a religious person, I don't actually view the masterpiece cake shop case as a religious liberty case. I view it as a First Amendment case. And what I mean by that is that my view of your freedom of religion is the same as my view of anyone's behavior in the United States, which is I get to wave my arm around until I hit you in the face. Right? The, the, this is the way the government ought to work that you don't get to make demands on my time or on my labor uh, because that is tyranny. Uh, and so I don't think that the religious cake owners ought to have any different rights than, for example, a person who was a speechwriter for President Obama, and now I walk in and I say, I want you to write a speech for me, and they say, I don't want to write a speech for you, I think you're an ass. Right? I think they should have the absolute right to do that. Uh, and I think that the cake shop owners, regardless of whether you think they're idiots or whether you think they're religiously true, should have the right to do that. I don't think that, I think that if we're going to have any sort of space for us to communicate, any sort of social fabric at all, we're going to have to acknowledge that there are places where we just have to leave each other alone. Uh, and the idea that I can compel you to do something for me makes you the bad guy. So I think that you have, I, I am a full believer, I'm a libertarian on this. I think that you have the complete right to be as much of an asshole as you want to be so long as you're not infringing on the rights of others and you do not have a right to buy a cake from me. Right. So I'm, I'm completely libertarian on this, and I also think that you'll go out of business because the person will go across the street to the next bakery and put them out of business. I mean, if you can't find a cake shop that is owned by a gay person in the United States, <laughs> good luck to you. It, it just it seems like that argument wouldn't have held up in the 60s in the South. Right, so I think yeah. that it actually wouldn't. So, yeah, yeah so, the, so the argument here uh, is, is twofold. One is, you're right, there are parts of America in which it wouldn't have held up with regard to racism. 
And the way to actually open that up is to deregulate the market. The reason that Jim Crow laws were Jim Crow laws is because they were laws. They actually had to force people to segregate. So, for example, in Alabama, they had laws that actually required restaurants to have spaces for black people and spaces for white people. Why would you need those laws if people were inherently just going to segregate their own restaurants? The idea here was that there were people who didn't want to segregate their restaurants and had to be forced by the government to do so. Okay, the, the best cake, the, the best um, example that I can think of here is the uh, the Woolworths counter boycott of 1960, in which there was an actual department store with a cafe. Uh, it's a very famous case, and the and it was boycotted by black students who who sat there at the counter and shut it down. This is before the Civil Rights Act, right? Uh, and Woolworths integrated. They said we, we're sick of losing the business. In fact, the Montgomery bus boycott. They would have integrated the buses, except for the fact that local regulations prevented them from integrating the buses. So, the, the, uh, is there discrimination? Of course. Are there bad people? Of course. Is the solution to that for the government to tell people who they can and cannot cater to? I don't think so. I think the solution is for the markets to take care of us and for social pressure to help take care of the problem, which clearly it does. I don't think we have a lack of social pressure in the United States with regard to tolerance and diversity. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I just want to thank, uh, thank you, Sam, for bringing out Ben. I, I think you two are two of the most important people that should be talking to each other at this moment in history. Um, and uh, as a podcast supporter and a, a reader, uh, hearing you two argue about free will is exactly what I wanted to hear. So thank you. Um, although I would love to hear Ben come back on the podcast when you, I think you have a refresher on his book about the topic. I think you don't fully understand his position. But uh, I, I'm so glad he, the first person asked that question because it's what I was going to ask you about. It's where is that moral threshold for you, uh, Sam and Ben? And, hmm. Uh, uh, where the state interest is there to where um, a public business using public waterways, using public roads, using everything that we, we you know, all contribute to with tax money uh, must serve the public. Where is that moral threshold where the state can step in and say uh, there is a compelling interest here for you to serve the public, to, to make the cake if you're in the public? Well, I, I actually agree with what Ben said there, except I would, I would acknowledge that there are periods in human history where everyone would benefit from some kind of enlightened pressure coming from the top, right? So the, you, you could have leaders and governments who are wiser, certainly earlier than most of the people in the society, and it would be a good thing to just legislate the most important truths there, more immoral truths. So if you think equality is super important and does good things, you know, political equality, but you have cut, you know, we're, we're talking about, a, you know, India with a caste system, say, it would be good to just remove the caste system, even though most people might still want it. If you go back 150 years. But there are moments, and I think you know, now it is a moment where you, we, I think we pay an unacceptable price for legislating some of these things. And so it's forcing people to bake a cake seems ridiculous to me, you know, morally and politically now. But if you're going to talk about you know, the civil rights movement and what was appropriate in 1964, I think you could get some kind of local horrible case where there just an, there are enough racists for as you know as far as anyone can comfortably walk or drive, so that you have to have the government to legislate some kind of equality because otherwise nothing's going to change quickly enough to matter. And I don't know where that line is, but the the principle is equality is so important that we should enshrine it and enforce it in any way we can. And, and, but I would, I would agree with you that most of that now is a matter of 
talking to one another and using social pressure. But then it sounds like you're almost saying that uh, we shouldn't have done the Civil Rights Act and uh, just no, let I things think, work out. No, no, no we, should, we should have. I mean, that was a moment where we, the, the market was failing, or I would argue the market yeah. was failing. The larger question of just what should, what should be privatized and what should be done by governments, everything that is best done privately should be done privately, but we should recognize that there are some things that are not best done privately and we need governments to do those things. And the things on either side of that ledger change depending on the, the moment in history. So. so I'm putting on my lawyer hat with, with regard to some of this, and one of the things that is, is a problem is I would obviously agree that America would be better off if in 1964 the federal government were forcing businesses to cater to black folks. But there is such a thing as a clear rule of neutral applicability. And the problem is once you give the government the power to do one thing, that government still has the power to do that thing after times change. And so the question becomes, okay, what does the government have the power to do and what does the government not have the power to do? Sometimes I wish I had the ring of power because I have to fight Sauron. Sometimes I, you know, but, but does that mean that I should try to steal it and use it? for the good, or does it mean I should try to throw it into Mount Doom? And one of the problems that you have here is that the same principle, that the government can force you to accommodate people the government wants you to accommodate, can be used in all sorts of terrible ways, and was used in all sorts of terrible ways. It was the state governments, again, that were re-enshrining segregation. It was not state governments that were showing enlightened leadership from the top. They were doing precisely the reverse at the state level. So it's, it's easy to say that if I were king of the world, this is what I would do. If I were king of the world, I'd do lots of things. But that might also make me a tyrant. It's the same ring that does good and bad. But. Yeah, that's right. Over here. Um, one of the reasons why some of the arguments for the existence of God don't resonate with me are because they rely on uh, seemingly unfalsifiable claims. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, uh, do you also do you believe that determinism... Uh, is falsifiable, uh, first of all, and then if, if, if you don't, is there a distinction between the unfalsifiability of determinism and the unfalsifiability of the existence of God? Well, so determinism, I, I don't really need determinism for, if you're speaking specifically about my argument against free will, it's, you know, it's determinism plus whatever randomness you want to throw in there. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, my, my problem with free will is that there is no account of how causes can happen and lead to events that lead to further events. There's just no account, whether it's determined or random or combined, that makes sense of what I think most people mean by free will. If it doesn't make sense to you in five minutes, it may take an hour to, to talk about it. But I wrote a, a short book on it, and I've talked about it a bunch on my podcast. Whether you are a robot made of meat Right, that, that certainly isn't a good basis for free will. If I told you in the middle of your processor we added a random number generator that threw in quantum randomness or, or you know, we just keep rolling dice, that doesn't add this thing that, that people think is there. It's unfalsifiable in some sense because it's not, it's not an empirical datum. It's actually just an incoherent idea. It's like saying there's a round square that's the best possible square. That's mm-hmm. not what I mean by square. There's just a, a logical contradiction there. Yep. Hi, I'm, I'm Joe Gananda. Thank you for coming. Um, ben and Sam, what came up for me when you were talking about truth and going back about it, and it seemed like Ben was saying that the, the, the uh, Jewish truth is, is this foundational um, precept that we can then derive, like make other truth claims on. And so 
what, what, what I'm getting, the, the lack of what I'm getting from Sam is that uh, the, the kind of great traditions, uh, the religious traditions, have these books that are incredible scaffolds for, for a moral framework, a cultural framework. Um, and the, the missionaries, to me, is like the, the institute evidence of that, that you could take people and give them this book and then just send them off, and they could drop into random cultures and just re-architect um, whole cities. You know, Los Angeles was missionary. So, um, you know, that was thousands, if not hundreds of years ago, and we can point to those books, and even today they're providing guidance for so many people. What is the modern equivalent of that? I mean, what, what is the great text that the, the atheist tradition would, would lie on from which we can, we can have a wellspring of, of moral construct. Like Jordan Peterson does an incredible job with his biblical series of taking the Bible hmm. and then and spinning off all of these, these understandable archetypical truths from which we can kind of derive ways to, to live. And I don't know what the, you know, the, the Twitter, Instagram, Kim Kardashian, where are we getting that from in, in, in the contemporary culture? Well, so... The answer is the totality of human knowledge and human conversation that is useful at any moment. I'm not saying that you can't read the Bible. Whatever you can find in the Bible that's useful and beautiful and true, well, I've got no argument against using it. It's just that there's so much in there that is patently insane and needlessly savage and absolutely divisive if you take it seriously. You know, it, it's, it's a horror show of, of certain sections of them. It's, there are other sections that are beautiful. And, and so, again, there's, there's, there's no, you know, if you're, if you're going to say you read Ecclesiastes this morning and it just set the tone for your day and you just... It, you got no argument from me, but but if you're an alien race and you and you read the Bible, you could you could come away with a lot of great truths and understandings about you would come human away condition. you would come away with almost no appreciation for how rich and beautiful the human experience is even now, right? Sure. I mean, like, like there's not there's not a single paragraph in the Bible that could not have been written by someone who lived. 1,500 years ago. or um, But if someone said, I have no moral foundation, point me to a, to a book to get started at. That's, like, like what, what is that's, the, what, I mean, this, as I've said, it's like, you know, you could wander blindfolded into a Barnes & Noble, if Barnes & Noble still exists, and, <laughs> and find something better than many of the so-called moral books of the Bible. I mean, it's like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus and... I mean, I mean, this is, this is you know, I mean, we, we can agree to disagree about this, but I mean, I think the precept that if your wife is, is found not to be a virgin on your wedding night, you should take her to her father's doorstep and stone her to death, right? That's just a bad idea. <laughs> right? we, don't, we don't have to venerate that. We should be able to cut that out of, of the human conversation. And because we have this notion of revelation, we can't. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this, this is mu much less of a problem with someone like Ben, obviously. It is an excruciating problem when you're talking about the Muslim world and what is being done with the Quran. And the Quran and the Hadith taken together is like the worst operating system that exists, right? And it's running on the brains of almost two billion people to one or another degree. And that's a, that is a civilizational challenge and a, and a, a veneration of, of this notion of revelation is what it's anchored to, right? We have to get out of the revelation business and get into the conversation but business. But get out into, into another book. I mean, like, we, we need That's, something we, else to What makes to. you think we need a book? I mean, this isn't a book. This is just 
we're, we're writing the book well, right wait now. Wait a second. I mean, so, it's not just a book, right? I mean, in Deuteronomy, uh, we Jews are instructed to set upon people with stones who, who entice us to worship gods not known to our fathers. And the code doesn't run. Okay? So the problem is, is that there's like an epigenetics, in some sense, to these books. And it says this stuff is inoperable. And we have ways of... Well, this, is, this is the part that I think that a simplistic understanding of how Revelation interacts with human behavior is... Uh, is Wouldn't it be a better book if you could be, just take out that one passage? Okay, uh, it would be better. So, it's, so, <laughs> so but, but, I, think that, I think that you're... So number one, the answer is that the Talmudic tradition largely does take out that passage. I mean, this okay. is a, there's an entire long, you know, thousands-year-long history. But the of, fact that it was included in the first place, doesn't that suggest to you that this was kind of a, a merely human enterprise and not a matter of being the no, perfect it word? Well, no, what wisest. it suggests to me. I mean, I'll give you the traditional religious answer, which I no, think actually no. holds some weight, which is that if you are going to convey any sort of written text or moral text to a people, the people who you're talking to have to have under, some understanding of what the hell you're talking about. If you use the word epigenetics in the year 1200 BC, right. it would but, be kind of difficult for folks to understand what the hell you're talking about. But it's, but it's also true to say that it was possible in 500, and all the more, 500 and, 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 sorry, BC. One, one more statement and then okay. I'll let it go. Yeah. And that is that the, the moral system by which you suggest that that portion of the Bible should be removed is built on the moral system of the Bible developed over 2,000 well, years. Your value, for, your value for the value well, of women. Ben, your ben, value it's, for it's the... It's not true. It's, it it is true because the fact is that it doesn't exist in the vast majority of other cultures over the vast majority of human history. No, but, but, but it does exist, and it existed in 500 B.C. It was possible in 500 B.C. to enunciate a more ethical framework than that. It and that's was, why there was a development it, in the ethical framework. Well, no, I mean, but I mean, just, just the, we the, Buddha, the, the, Buddha, the Buddha didn't say stoner on her father's doorstep. Now, the Buddha was no great promulgator of, of, of women's rights, but he wasn't that bad. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and what I'm saying is that your definition of that bad comes from a tradition that has developed no, well, the idea that this is bad. Well, okay, but so then... You live in a context. Convict me of Buddhism, then. I mean, it's, 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 it's not... It's but I not, don't believe that your values were really shaped by Buddhism. Well, I think your values were pretty much shaped by a Judeo-Christian well, tradition in which you lived, and well, you used those values as a springboard. That's simply untrue. But did, uh, Where did you grow up? Well, no, it, if you're talking about where I came to my most considered view of ethics, it's by having a much larger conversation with I, all of all of. That's the not what I'm talking about. That's right? not what I'm talking about. I'm not Am talking I, about I, your browsing in world literature. No, I'm talking about the fundamental precepts that you took to be moral from the time you were a child, a rise in a Western civilization predicated on Judeo-Christian notions of good and bad. You can say that, but again, we're back to bridge building. It's just like it's, no, it's, you, it's, listen, the, the basic argument that we're having is that you think all history is contingent, and I don't think that all history is contingent. I think there's an element of necessity. The problem with religion, for me, in many cases, is that it, and apologies to the people who are still standing there, but <laughs> this is worth... Sorry, got fun. Um, <laughs> it's that... The better angels of our nature are often better than the doctrines that seem to inform so much of human morality. I mean, we, we, you know, people don't come into this world eager to stone other people to death for thought crimes or for working on the Sabbath or for not having a hymen. Just this is but you have to be do, taught. But, but you have to be do, taught to do these things. I'm people, not saying. I mean, we are we are apes, most, so we're in, not perfect. In most, but, in most cultures, the people do come into the world eager to stone each other for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, the levels of violence in, in pre-modern society are incredibly high. That, that's absolutely true. You don't need doctrines to be violent. But when you, add, when you have doctrines that are clearly built on xenophobia and superstition and 
an attitude toward evidence that is unscientific, should just promulgate them generation after generation with no way of course correcting because it is anathema to edit these traditions. And to have the best you can do is to sort of have some further argument which says we don't have to honor this all the time. That, it just seems like it slows down the human well, progress. I, I don't think it slows down. I think it roots it to the, to the foundations, meaning that there's a, there's a famous story in the Talmud where the, there's a, a rabbi who comes along to a, a Sanhedrin. It's a group of people who are about to rule on the law. Right. And the rabbi says to them, I have this, this doctrine, and I promise you it's right. And, this, and the people in the room say, it's, it's wrong. We don't believe you. And he says, I'll prove to you that it's right. And he says, if, if it's right, then let the walls of the room collapse in, you know, lean in. And the walls of the room lean in. And the people say, you know what, that's, that's not in the Bible. Even if, even if you get the walls of the room to lean in in favor of your opinion, that doesn't mean that it's true because we were given the ability to basically rule on the law. And then there is a voice from heaven, right? This is in Jewish text, right? There's a voice from heaven that comes down and says These do- that this rabbi is right. And the people say to God, right, they say to the voice of heaven, that's not the law that you gave us. You gave us the capacity to interpret and later, and later there's a prophet who they're speaking to, and the prophet basically says, God, God was happy when you did that because the whole point of a revelation is that there's an interaction between God and man that is ongoing. Okay? And so to take the simplified version and then to pillory the simplified version, it exists in many cultures in the world. And I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't exist in fundamentalist Islamic countries because clearly it does. But to lump all revealed religion into one category as though everyone who believes in revealed religion stopped the development of human morality at... Point one is just not accurate. Look, there's there's an issue also that there's there's that which is fit, and that's there's that which is not fit. So if you like the Shaker religion, you like the furniture, you like the way that they have hymns. <laughs> uh, you know, you, I think you're down to your last Shaker, or maybe they've completely died out because it wasn't a fit thing. They stopped taking mm-hmm. recruits. So however beautiful it is, it self terminates, and you have self extinguishing things, right? If you have a tradition that is absolutely brutal cruel, without grace, but is highly fit, it's winning in a different metric than the, the metric that Sam is talking about. And sometimes what happens is, is that you end up denaturing these things so that you get something that is beautiful and self-terminating. The other mm-hmm. issue has to do with the fact that in all of these issues, the texts don't do anything. It's the, the machines interpret the texts. And even if you have a, a tradition like you know this prohibition against innovation in Islam, bid'a, where you, you're not allowed to innovate you know, because the, the, uh, the text is its own instruction manual. You're not allowed to put this extra structure, like, you know, binding repressor so that the code doesn't run around it, mm-hmm. to use a genetic metaphor. You know, you have a situation in which every religion has to continue to adapt. And so whether or not there's a prohibition against innovation, they're all innovating, and they're all trying to run an, some code more than others. Some gets promoted, some gets repressed. No matter what they tell you, you're allowed to do it. If it doesn't work out, the thing self-terminates. But when you're looking at something, which is an absolutely enormous percentage of humanity, you have to ask yourself, are you upset with that thing because it violates grace or because it violates fitness, because it violates truth? These are all different things. And I think that it's just important to recognize if you go to Barnes & Noble and there are two separate books that tell you one that you have to communicate with your partner in a relationship and the other one that says relationships are not about communication, that's where everything goes wrong, you start to realize that there is this problem that we don't have a great atheist text that tells us what to do. If you want to go into a particular religion, you get this idea, like in Judaism, of ehad, one single you know, unified voice. If that works for you, great. 
however, you can also shop around and deal with the, the dialectics and the contradictions. And so I think, you know, in some sense, there's, there's no way out. You've got to struggle with it, and you have to think about it on, on a whole bunch of different levels. Thank you. Well, good evening and thank you for the conversation. Um, I wanted to ask a question about a topic you touched on briefly in the beginning, which is about echo chambers and the role of social media. Um, Sam, you had Zeynep Defekci and Cass Sunstein on more recently, and mm -hmm. they talked about, uh, Cass especially offered compelling evidence about you know, people's views getting more extreme as they hang out with people that are like them. Mm -hmm. um, and I happen to agree with that, but in the Valley, there's a couple of different views that, oh, the introduction of social media is just like the printing press, or, and or, um, you know, if you blame all of this on social media, that means you're discounting the fact that people have agency. Um, basically, they're saying that your agency right. should overcome the algorithm. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I just think that what's insidious here is that Again, we can be influenced, we, we know this about ourselves, we can be influenced in ways that we don't recognize, in fact, we are all the time, and the idea that a very small number of people for you know, purely mercenary reasons can game our wetware and convince us to spend our attention in ways that, in hindsight, we think is a terrible misuse of our time, and in ways that produce conflict between people that wouldn't otherwise occur. I mean, the, the, the analogy to road rage is, it seems more and more apt. It's like, a, road rage is a very strange phenomenon. You get in the car and you become this other person, right? And, like, and just a pane of glass separating you from another hominid gets you to act in ways that are just starkly insane. You know, I mean, the people who, like, get to the point of pulling over to have a, a fist fight with a stranger in the car, and then they get out of the car, and then they realize, oh, my God, this is not the situation I thought I was in. Right? So <laughs> social media is kind of, kindling the, the road rage part of the brain, and we are broadcasting these paroxysms to thousands and millions of people, and, and it's affecting everything. And this is all being gamed on the, on the other side by people who just want us to spend more time on the platform, and that we need to understand what's happening and what we're doing to ourselves. We're all part of a vast psychological experiment that no one signed up for. There's no consent and we're consenting by just by virtue of doing what we want. But if you've got, you know, a team of brilliant engineers and marketers turning the dials of what you want or can be made to want every moment, and they have billions of dollars, and then now, now they have AI algorithms doing it better, and they're just trying to get 5% more of your time, and, it, and if, if it potentially changes politics and changes governments, and I mean, like, uh, this is, again, we're just, we're just talking about how influence happens and we need to understand more and more about where we want to go and should want to go and, and how to get there. And the haphazard quality of this that I think disturbs so many people and, and, the ob and, and seeing things that are obviously ugly and maladaptive that we can't extract ourselves from. Because, I, would, I would love to say one thing positively yeah. about this, which is that Somebody referred to uh, the group of people I, I'm increasingly hanging out with as the intellectual dark web, which is emerging. You know, so you, somebody mentions Jordan Peterson. Like, who the hell was Jordan Peterson two years ago? Nobody knew who he was. And even though we, we disagree with each other, of course, Sam sort of had a semi-disastrous first podcast with Jordan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but the point is, is that 
there is this group of people that have gotten privileges to write to imaginary newspapers that never existed. If you have a Twitter following of over 10,000 people, um, the, the thing that used to control the coherence was this thing I call the gated institutional narrative. And you couldn't write to it unless you lived at one of these institutions, like Harvard or the New York Times or the Senate. And what is now happening is, is that we recognize that the reporter who reports for the New York Times is just one more voice, not necessarily more interesting. And in general, these people do not want to talk to us. We have had a much easier time talking amongst ourselves, despite the apparent frictions and differences, because there is this different substrate uh, of conversation that's available to you. So, you know, what I would, what I would really consider that the bright spot in this for me is meeting about 25 people who are somehow neither becoming troglodytes by falling off the A-frame roof of reason in this direction, you know, nor dupes uh, by falling off in the others, right? They're not deplorable and, and they're, not, they're not captured. And so if you can find this group of people, this is the really interesting thing to watch because I think this intellectual dark web is what we're supposed to reboot from. And thank you guys all for coming out uh, and experimenting yeah. with it. Hey, I think we have about 15 minutes left here, so just keep going. Hi, my name is Bob Caswell, and I wanted to ask Sam about sexism and feminism. Mm. I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but I kind of do. Oh, you sort of do, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is better you than me. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, standard disclaimers, I'm a white dude asking three white dudes. Um, but I, I'm interested in the solution. Right now we're in a moment of outrage, which I think is well justified. But what should we do as right. humans to move forward? Right. Well, let me, let me just say I, I'm planning to tackle this on my podcast with a woman, uh, or actually a series of women, so I, it will be uh, something I talk about. And, uh, you know, for, for better or for worse, I mean, it is something... I, I can say my, my default setting... I'm very secure in my default setting here because I do see this just by, by bias, frankly, from the perspective of a woman. I mean, when, I, when we talk about you know, sexual harassment and, you know, elevator gate or any of these moments where, you know, a woman says she f was made to feel uncomfortable by a man, you know, I was raised by a single mom, you know, I've got two daughters, I view all my self-defense thinking about violence, privileges, the fact that women are walking around in, in this world outweighed by men virtually all the time, you know, my default setting is to trust the woman's account in all of these things. And I feel like men have a moral obligation not to be creeps. And, and I, I, again, I see this, this uh, um, you know, I, I think in this case, through, just through sheer good luck from the perspective of a, you know, a little boy who was raised by a, a mother without a father in the house. So I get it. And yet I also get that I'm, as being a guy, uh, I'm capable of not getting it, right? So I, I want to put myself in conversation with, with, a, with a few smart women journalists who can walk me through this, and I'm a, I'll just table it for that podcast. Sounds good. Okay. Yeah. Hey, uh, I got cut off by two people in Vancouver at the Q&A, so... Oh. Uh, um, <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. I'm really happy that Sam and Ben are having a conversation. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. I, I tore out all my hair listening to you say... There's not enough nuance on the conservative side of the media spectrum in the car yep. on your podcast right after I listened to Ben's podcast where he's giving nuance and 
was frustrating. My question is actually uh, for Eric. Um, I saw your brother actually a couple days after I saw Sam uh, with Jordan Peterson in Vancouver, and I, I asked him a question about um, uh, the hygiene theory. It basically, uh, he said he'd spoken to you about it, um, like uh, these experiences that Ben and uh, Jordan Peterson have had where uh, people essentially freak out uh, when they hear opposing, opposing views. Uh, and the hygiene theory says that the profile of, um, um, or hypothesis, sorry, um, the profile of people with the fewest number of allergies uh, are people are like kids who have uh, at least one other uh, sibling. They're around animals. They play outside, so they're exposed to all sorts of germs, and they develop uh, an immune system. Whereas the people who use hand sanitizer everywhere, they tend to be the opposite and have problems. And so I was, I asked your brother if. Um, do you think that the ideological uh, uh, sort of uh, echo chamber that that some colleges and universities have become is is is, is sort of like a uh, a germless uh, sanitized environment that uh, is is raising people to have sort of a, a a social allergic reaction when when an an outside opposing uh, view comes in, and I understand you've talked about it with your brother, so I was wondering what your, what your thoughts are of, on that, if I've explained myself. Yeah, yeah. We'll I don't know if I kept, got it exactly, but um, I was just saying to uh, these gentlemen that a lot of what I see happening is like, you, you've, you've taken a bunch of normal cats, you've made them indoor cats by declawing them, and then you've given them AK-47s uh, to compensate <laughs> for the inability to defend themselves with normal, uh, you know, proportional means. And uh, I do worry that somehow we did a lot of things developmentally that we didn't understand. It sounded pretty good, you know, like social-emotional learning, uh, emotional intelligence, nonviolent communication. I don't know why nobody's brought up, uh, what is it, Marshall uh, Rosenberg and his theory that... Uh, speech, you know, can hurt, uh, there, there exists violent speech, which I think was a pretty good idea, but then it got, like... Weaponized. In, so to speak. And, um, and you know, there is a real issue when, you know, those of us who learn skateboarding without a helmet and were allowed to stay out uh, late to play until the streetlights went on before... Aton Pats found his way onto a milk carton, um, and the kids came indoors where there is an idea that getting your knees skinned, um, chipping a tooth, uh, taking some flack in an argument are normal processes, and I worry that what we've done is create a, a metaphorically, immunologically naive people who imagine that uh, they are being assaulted and harmed by just about everything. And um, what I would love to do is to figure out how to get these indoor cats to grow some claws and give back the assault weapons. Hi, uh, my question is for both Sam and uh, Ben. If possible, I'd like to hear what both of you think about this. But how do you feel about uh, Donald Trump's latest decision about moving the embassy to Jerusalem? Um, well, I mean, briefly, I just think it's, I think 
both sides of this argument are, are necessarily crazy because, we're, we're, again, we're talking about the, the religious balkanization of our world and we, ha we have to get out of this problem as quickly as possible, in my view. But I view it like almost any decision he's likely to make, it's almost certainly based on a very, very little understanding of what's actually going on in the world. And it's almost certainly impulsive and guided by his own political needs of the moment or pandering to some future voter he's imagining that uh, he needs. So I, I just, I think it's, we, again, we have the, the wrong person's in charge. And if he does something right, it's going to be by accident. And that's, that should scare us. You know, so. so do you think it's the but right decision? I, I, you know, I don't, I think it's, I think it's probably needlessly inflammatory at this moment. It could possibly do something good. It could just sort of force the issue in a way that could be productive. I actually don't know. It's, it's not the first thing I would do as president. But again, I don't have a strong intuition about what its effects will be. Well, as you can imagine, uh, <laughs> for a wide variety of reasons, I think it's one of the best things that the president has done. Uh, I think that it's a, a good thing that he did it because I think it is a reality on the ground and the preconditions for any successful negotiation are going to be to recognize the reality on the ground, which is that this is the capital of Israel. Israel is not giving up Jerusalem and any thought to the contrary is operating in cloud cuckoo land. Uh, beyond that, the idea that Israel would give up control over the holy sites uh, in Jerusalem, which regardless of whether you believe that they're holy or not, certainly are holy to billions of people around the planet of various religions, when they have been under Muslim control in the past, from, for example, 1948 to 1967, those sites were not open to Jews. Uh, they are open to Muslims now when Jews are in control of them. Uh, so I, I think that the president made a, a proper moral and political decision. I also think that a lot of this is overblown, meaning that right now, just geopolitically, not a lot of people actually care about this outside of believe it or not, Europe and the United States, meaning that the Saudis are sort of pretending to care about this. The Jordanians are sort of pretending to care. But the reality is that because Iran is a giant regional threat to what is a newly formed alliance in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel, uh, this has become a back burner priority at best for all of those nations. And the idea that this is going to create some sort of regional conflagration in the face of what is an Iranian military threat to a lot of teetering regimes, uh, I think is short-sighted and, and media malpractice, actually. So you don't think it's going to be a barrier in, you know, moving forward? Uh, I mean, moving forward toward what? I mean, it, it depends on... agreement between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Israel has shown itself willing multiple times to give up large swaths of land, including parts of Jerusalem. Uh, the biggest problem is that on the other side, you have Hamas, which in its charter in 1988 suggests that the full-fledged destruction of the state of Israel is its top priority, and the Palestinian Authority, which in its charter, in the PLO charter in 1964, prior to Israel controlling the old city of Jerusalem, said that Israel should be destroyed. So when one side wants to destroy the other, and the other side has offered concessions multiple times, it's very difficult to make any sort of real peace agreement. Oslo's been a giant failure. Mm. All right. The people who are standing in that line still, I mean, if you like standing, that, that's fine, but there's just there's no way we're going to get to the back of it. So, Realistically, we, we're down to the last two questions, so I'll go left and right. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you yeah. for doing this. I think uh, our society definitely needs a lot more examples of people having complex conversations, so I no, really thank you. appreciate this. Um, I wonder if you could give me some advice on how much of my time and attention I should spend on things that seem like they need solutions but are really annoying and painful to pay attention to versus the things that I really like paying attention to but, I don't know, maybe aren't exactly solving these seemingly pressing problems. 
That's, that's a genuinely hard question. I, mean, I, I struggle with that. I mean, again, it's, it, this comes to one of Ben's concerns. It's a clearly a mature notion of well-being isn't narrowly focused on mere pleasure, right? So there are many good things in life that we know we have to struggle to get, and the struggle isn't the best we can feel at any moment in that day. And, there's, and much of our happiness is in some ways retrospective. You, know, you get through the hard workout, which if you actually could experience sample in each moment, contain moments that were actually quite painful. You know, and if you'd had them for another reason, you would have been very worried about the way you were feeling. Just imagine what it's like to really work out hard. And if you woke up in the morning feeling that way and you didn't know what the hell was wrong with you, you'd go straight to the hospital. So the the way you interpret your extreme sensations matters and and determines how you feel about it all. But much of our our sense of satisfaction in life is a sense of having put in the hard work to do something that was worth doing. And and pleasure is not the, the only variable that we care about. And, and what I think we, more and more we should care about doing things that scale and that, that make life better for other people. And there are many, many ways to play that game. The most important variable for, for determining how happy that makes you is to dial in your, intent, your intentions uh, in a way that make it, I mean, if your intention is actually to do good in the world, and you realize you're not in total control of the outcome, that, that lived intention can be a, a real source of well-being, right? And then, and then your, your sense of well-being isn't totally dependent on the outcome. If you were intending good things all the while and you fail, you still have the experience of intending good things all the while, right? And that, and that has a kind of an, an intrinsic character psychologically. Whereas if you were just a schmuck who was constantly at odds with other schmucks and the world was driving you crazy, and you were trying to change it, <laughs> right? Then you had that experience of just, you're, you're at war the whole time, and you still failed, right? So um, I just, I think it's getting the, your hands on the dial of intention it really matters. But then it's, you know, how you spend your time, you just have to be honest with yourself. I mean, if, you're, if what you're doing that may in fact matter in the scheme of things or in, in other people's lives makes you miserable and you're not, and... and you know, you have, you have to sometimes step away from it. And I mean, I've had to step away, playing this game with you all, you know, it's immensely satisfying to me that we could all have a conversation like this. But it's not, every moment is not filled with pleasure necessarily. Uh, I mean, you've heard my tone of voice with Ben. I mean, it's not, it's, that's not all uh, me broadcasting pleasure. There's some frustration, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. These are all just experiments in conversation. And I, I think they're worth it. And in the aggregate, I get immense satisfaction from this, but uh, but I still have to step away. I mean, I like you know, is it the best use of my time to see what all of you said about this on Twitter tonight? You're going to do um, it anyway. I, 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 I'm actually I'm making those decisions. I'm curating my, the contents of my own consciousness a little more circumspectly now because I, I find that. Some even positive signals aren't, are, are kind of the wrong thing to be focusing on for me. And, and so I just, we just again, it's a, na- it's a navigation problem for me. It's just like, where is sanity in this moment? You just have to keep trying to track it. How does that map on to the number of our president's tweets I should be like? Yeah, no, I, I have spent much less time noticing Trump because I feel like I can, I can get the gist. And it's, it's, 
it's felt better. You know, I mean, I have to focus on it at, at some point. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, otherwise, the, the alternative is a kind of masochism, you know, there's, and, and it's just not, it's not worth it. Thanks. Yep. Hi, guys. Um, my name's Nicole. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Uh, this question is for Sam. Uh, in Dan Harris's book, 10% Happier, Dan decides to go on a silent retreat led by Joseph Goldstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, however, when he tries to sign up, he discovers that these retreats are in high demand and that he has to enter into a lottery in which his chances of getting in are slim. Uh, he tries playing the journalist card, which gets him nowhere. Uh, so he then asks you to pull some strings for him. Um, and sure enough, he gets a spot in the retreat. Uh, so my first question is, did he report that accurately? And second, um, do you think it's ethical to use your... This kind of a it's kind of a lifeboat problem, isn't there? I do, who did I kick out of the lifeboat? Uh, yeah, no, that is true. I mean, I, I feel like it. It was. I mean, the reality is, is that I'm, I'm not sure why this is interesting to, to anyone, but the reality is <laughs> that you know when when people organize retreats like that, they hold what I think they call discretionary spots for just people outside the lottery, just for people who. They're, they're going to want to put in, and, and whatever criteria they use to want to put those people in, that's, that's on them. And Joseph happens to be a, uh, a very close friend, and Dan was someone who I thought could get immense value out of the retreat and would be very good for spreading the word about the, the value that is to be gotten out of the retreat. So I, I, it just seemed like a no-brainer to say, hey, Joseph, Dan really wants to sit a retreat. Do you have any spots, discretionary spots left? And so it was, it was his call. Um, so, and it, it, it doesn't seem unethical to me, but I understand that it seems weird that you have to pull strings to go on a meditation retreat. So is there more behind that? Or you, no, that's it. Thank you. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of guys at, at the mic. Um, please, uh, I've got to go to you. So I have kids. You have yeah. kids, right? Do you have kids? Yeah. We all do. Yes. All have kids. Great. So when it comes to free will, I get it. I'm completely on board, Sam, with your idea that we, there's no free will. No. When it comes to raising kids, where's Don't the tell them. Don't tell them that there's no free will. <laughs> so I have, a, I, you know, I have an 18-year-old boy who's you know, gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And when I'm trying to tell him to do the right thing and he does something stupid... And then I want to find out why he did that. I don't even ask because it's a stupid question because he doesn't even know why he did it because he's an 18-year-old boy. But when I'm looking at impacting his future behavior, where's the practical separation between knowing that there's really no free will and wanting your children to be responsible right. in their behavior and what they do in the world? Okay. Well, I mean, this is an important question. I think there are many false assumptions about what it must mean to think that there's no free will. So I think there's no free will, but I think effort is incredibly important, right? And I think you can't wait. A, I mean, the example I use in my book, I think, is you know, if you want to learn Chinese, you can't just wait around to see if you learn it, right? It's not going to happen to you. I mean, there's a way to learn Chinese, and you have to do the things you need to do to learn Chinese. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Every skill you or system of knowledge you could master uh, is like that. And getting off of drugs is like that. And getting into shape is like that. And straightening out your life in any way that it's crooked is, is like that. But the 
recognition that you didn't make yourself and that you are exactly as you are at this moment because the universe is as it is in this moment has a, a flip side, which is you don't know how fully you can be changed in the next moment by good company and good conversations and reading good books. And you don't know what... I mean, you, you, are, you are an open system, right? And we, it's just a simple fact that people can radically change themselves. You're not condemned to be who you were yesterday. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of people who are totally off this message, like someone like Jocko Willink, right? The Navy SEAL, who's he's like the opposite of me in every respect, right? And, and so even on this question of free will. He, he's scared of you, by the way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, so he's, he's all about effort and, and discipline. And it's all true that all of all, you know, discipline matters. Discipline has consequences. But again, in each moment, if you put on Jocko's podcast tomorrow and it changes what you're going to do with your day by 25% and it's crucial to your happiness, you, again, you're not in a position to know why it, it did that that day and didn't do it last Thursday. And you, you're not even in a position to know to why you turned it on, really. And again, you're just, you're open to the universe. But again, there's immense freedom in that. It's not, you're, you can keep going in the direction that, that you, you want to go. But as far as what to tell kids, you need a strong sense of agency. The, the measure of what to tell kids is what's, what to tell anybody ultimately is what's true and useful, right? It's not just all, you just don't download random truths because some truths are, are I think, not worth knowing at certain moments in life, right? You don't tell your eight-year-old about all the ways in which human beings can become diseased and die early and, you know, childhood cancer is on the menu. And, you know, do you want to talk about that now? That's not... There's, there's too much reality at certain moments. And I, mean, I think empowering kids to feel like they can seize the reins of their lives is, is worth doing. I mean, assuming that there is no free will, the parental machines that are pre-programmed to communicate that there is free will to the machines that have no free will that are their children, those, those machines will do better. So probably you were sent right. here by, uh, by Laplacian determinism to ask this question so that we could respond without choice to tell you <laughs> tell you to lie just that. Yeah. Yeah. well listen on on that note there, there's there is no there's no comfortable way to ever cut this short but we're at the the limits of our time here and for many of you the limits of the human bladder again it's a it's a total honor to do this and it's I'm immensely gratified that you have given me the opportunity to do it by coming out and that Ben and, and Eric would join me for it and this just makes me very happy to do this and thank you all for coming out. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Really great. Well done, sir. Thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. 
All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.